Many of you know Axis deer is considered to be the best tasting venison on the planet. I've been hearing that for years. And that those deer cause some ecological harm. Well, Maui Nui Venison is bringing those Axis deer to the market. So you can get some fresh cuts and sticks shipped to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. I've used that Sport Dog collar in different temperatures. It just doesn't stop working. Get 20% off your first purchase using code Meat Eater. So go to www.sportdog.com slash meat eater to learn more. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. All right, folks, we're here in Southern Colorado. Are you introing the show, Yanni? I was just messing around, starting. I could, though. Okay. That's all I'm going to say about it. Southern Colorado. Yeah, that's enough. Um, you know what I was thinking about recently uh, that I wanted to... I think I kind of told you about it already, but I thought you'd like it, is I saw a dude. He had a shirt. You know people will go to a, um, like the Super Bowl or whatever, or someone will win the Super Bowl? Yes. And people will have a shirt. They'll say, like, the, the Bears. Yeah, Super Bowl champions. Yeah. I saw a guy recently that had a shirt commemorating the fact that he watched that big solar eclipse. <laughs> it was like solar eclipse 2018 or whatever, you know? I thought you'd appreciate you that. You like that. I like it. Well, I thought yeah. you'd like it. Oh. I didn't give a shit. I just thought you'd like it. Oh, you didn't give a shit? No, I mean, I liked it, but I didn't like it as much as I thought you'd like it. Yeah, we should make something to just say like elk season 2019. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a good idea. <laughs> um, remember we were talking about me saying that you'll appreciate this, Seth, uh, okay. the, the flip-flop flesher. Me saying that I gave up on flip-flops because of someone saying, like, how are you going to rescue your family? Yeah. Or and, defend your wife. Or defend your wife if you're wearing flip-flops. Mm-hmm. I'd be curious to get your take on this, Rourke Denver. I have mixed feelings. I definitely appreciate both sides of it. I lived in Hawaii for about a year before I joined the Navy, and flip-flops is like general attire. I mean, that's, that's what you wear, whether it's a formal event or you're on the beach or heading to the beach. 
and your feet become like belt radials. So I'd say because you get so much barefoot time over there as well. So if you had to rescue your family over there, they're probably prepped to go barefoot if need be. Just kick them off. Yeah, and, just and kick them the off rescue. and go. Yeah. So I felt like at a time I probably had that capacity for work. But now I, I live somewhere in between. I do like having the kit. To, if things go wrong, I'm off the races, grabbing one kid, my bride's grabbing the other kid, and we're surviving the zombie apocalypse. But I like a flip-flop, man. Still. Like flip-flop, yeah, I do. Uh, I'm real torn on it, man. Like I said, I quit for a while, but I'm thinking about getting back into it now. Because it's, it's wintertime now, <laughs> or it's fall. It's like the yeah. wrong season. Now's not the time. It. Well, getting back into it when, when the time when comes. the weather improves. Uh-huh. But I took a little break because my buddy Dave, um, my buddy Dave was telling. I, th- I think I told the story right. My buddy Dave was telling a story where he was in. Like, he's from Montana, but he was in New York, and he comes into a comedy club with his wife, and he's got his flip flops on. And the comedian on stage berates him. And he's like, where the hell are you from? Because he was like surprised to see a guy wearing flip-flops in, in the city. Yeah, I, th- I, think you, I don't think you should wear flip-flops in New York City. Because you're not prepared. You're not prepared. And it's also dirty. Well, he didn't like it. And that made my buddy Dave really question it. And then I showed up in flip-flops. And Dave was like, you are the last guy on the planet I thought would wear flip-flops. What is going on? And I quit. So... After talking about this flip-flop thing, we got two pieces of feedback from people. Um, one pro flip-flop and one uh, con flip-flop or against flip-flop. The against flip-flop guy is talking about how last December he uh, comes home on his lunch break and sees that there's a car parked in his driveway and his side gates open and the French doors in the back of his house are open. And he credits his leather boots with the fact that he was emboldened to run into his house and confront the intruder. And he says that if he'd been wearing his flip-flops, he would have been stuck out front calling 911. But he goes in, he's sure someone's in his house robbing his house. He barrels into the house yelling, who's in my house? And is met there by a dude who, a burglar who is brandishing the guy's own 357. Like the burglar ran in, found his 357 and is holding his 357. They get into a scuffle. And he knocks the glasses off of the guy and then hauls ass out of his house and runs away, leaving the burglar in the house with the pistol. Later, when the cops come over, they find that that the glasses that the guy knocked off during the scuffle, and they're able to pull a DNA sample off the glasses and catch a career burglar. Wow. Nice. And he credits his uh, having not had his flip-flops on but another guy's talking about he takes his wife this guy's from north carolina he takes his wife to some fancy resort and his wife goes into the bathroom and he's sitting there eating and sees that there's this rat scurrying around and she's not happy about the rat he tells the waitress about the situation eventually the rat comes by and comes within seven feet and he's got those big you know those big keen flip-flops <laughs> like super heavy duty flip-flops he says he took that flip-flop and JoJo killed the rat hucking a flip-flop at it. So he said in that case, it was his flip-flops that enabled him to defend his wife from the rat. From the big scary rat. And they gave him $100 credit. Ooh, oh, there you go. At the resort. Huh. So You think he's going to go back to that rat-filled resort? <laughs> so point being, it's inconclusive whether flip-flops, uh, you know, our appropriate attire. 
Yeah. If, if we're making arguments on the toughness of flip-flops, I will say when stationed on both coasts in the SEAL teams, the west coast of the SEAL teams in mass wears flip-flops at a high, high level. Really? So if you're just trying to like evaluate the, the, the raw toughness of those people that wear flip-flops, there's at least one subgroup that will live a, a large portion of their life in flip-flops whose toughness is probably unquestioned. Yeah, that makes, and, who, that makes are, me feel and good. who are probably capable of defending their wives. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you remember that book, Black Hawk Down? You might be able to give some perspective well, on I this. Know, I know people that were there. Yeah, yeah. I read the book Black Hawk Down, and in it, the author, Mark Bowden, um, talks about some developing tensions within the ranks of people in Somalia. And one point of contention was that certain guys on this base were allowed to wear flip-flops uh, while on guard duty. Military? Yes. Military? Oh. Mm-hmm. That they would, maybe not allowed, but they were taking the liberty to stand there with a flak vest. What do you call a flak vest? Yeah, flak, uh, flak jacket. I mean, that's old, old term, body armor. They would have shorts, flip-flops, a flak jacket while standing guard. And other people from other units weren't allowed to do this and it was creating some tension yeah there would be some aesthetic of seeing somebody in that gear that would appeal to me and i would probably be equally pissed that they were in that outfit standing there. Yeah. so you'd look at it and be like yeah i get, I get I'd be it. like i like what this guy believes in and then i would probably holler at him to go put some combat boots on <laughs> some pants um on the, on the subject, on, on the ongoing subject of what to do with your dead body when you die, this guy, he, this guy writes in, he was talking about this with his wife, and his wife proposed to him that she could take his ashes and integrate them into a salt mineral lick and then put, like, stir them into a mineral lick and put it out so that, that uh, that's how his ashes could go, consumed by deer so that he could give something back after all that they'd given to him. Look at that. I like it. Yeah, I like that too. Uh, another thing I wanted to talk about is, yeah, like I was observing the other day uh, an emerging trend. And this might not even resonate with people who don't live in sort of like posh mountain towns. But in posh mountain towns, there's an emerging trend. Bozeman tr- being one of. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, catch them, like all the posh mountain towns. Sure. There's an emerging trend of, of having your pickup truck, and, and, and instead of keeping your shit in your truck, you strap it to the outside of your truck. Mm-hmm. And I was observing this, to Gian, and it seemed to agitate Giannis that I even had the audacity to make the observation. You got pretty hot. I got, <laughs> you got pretty hot. I just <laughs> am like... You know, just, that's, that's the part that got me, is that I couldn't believe it over such a thing that you were affected so much personally on the inside. Like, I don't really care if you like it or don't like it, but the fact that it sort of affected you and that you were like really worked up that these people choose to do this, whether it's fashion or for whatever reason. Oh, it's fashion. Yeah. It's fashion. But it's just interesting to me to find that you, like, it affects you so much. Yeah. You, like, I, there's no way that, like, where I grew up, where everybody, like, you know, all the people that hunt and fish where I grew up drive pickup trucks. Mm-hmm. There's no way that what you do, if you like to hunt and fish, you get a truck and you put a topper on it. Mm-hmm. And then you put your, your stuff in there. 
But wasn't there a subset of that group that would have some KC uh, lights, even though they really never really needed them, yes. but they had freaking lights yes. on their truck? A because, roll bar with some lights would yeah. not be out of the question. Yeah, even though they Fashion. never really cruised around. Fashion, yes. Doing whatever you do with And big we lights. would weld up, uh, we would weld up uh, bumper guards that were excessive. Like, you'd start with 8-inch C-channel and weld that to the frame. Not, like, you'd start with 8-inch C-channel, raft around, and then just build from there. And looking, and at the time, I didn't recognize it as such, but to be totally honest, looking back on it, there was a fashion element to who could have the craziest brush guard. Yeah. Now it's just uh, who could have the most overlay. What is it? It's called overland. Is that where it comes from? I don't know. I I mean, I think it seems like it. Yeah, overlanding. Overlanding. Yeah. Something like that. The other day I was sitting there and and a guy pulls up. I was looking out our office window and a guy pulls up and he's, yeah, it looked like Yosemite Sam. Um, Like all this shit, gas cans, water cans, shovels, pickaxes, a jack. All hooked to the out, and then like, what's the inside? The truck. I don't know. Room for the kayak or the stand-up paddle, stand-up paddleboard, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like at my like like I'm, I don't know, man. At forty-five years of age, I'm just hitting the age where I look at stuff, and, and I don't like it. But I just look at the age where I just get like like things will catch my eye and irritate me a little bit mm-hmm. that they shouldn't. And you're not there yet. Because you're less, you're younger. Yeah, Seth was saying for his rig, you know, he's got a an FJ. Yeah. So it's a little bit. You, is all your shit strapped to the outside of your truck? No. Nobody wants it to poop. I tent. wish. I wish some shit was strapped to the outside though. You do. But well, how old are you? Twenty eight. Because you but, think it looks sweet. No. <laughs> no. I, listen, we had this conversation the other day in the car, um, and there was two things that I I would put on the outside. One being fuel canisters. Because it smells. It smells, and the FJ has such a small tank that I'm always hauling. Like, if I go hunting, I throw my hitch carrier in with a tank of gas on the Who back. makes that? Who makes the your, your vehicle? I know your rig, but what, what kind of rig is that? It's a Toyota. Oh, okay. FJ Cruiser. You, um, like, you think it's a hunting rig? Oh, it is. It's just a little small. That's why I need shit strapped on the outside. Gotcha. Um, and you think it looks sweet? Oh, yeah. I like it. Yeah. It's a badass little rig. No, I mean, you think it'd be sweeter if you had like pots and pans and shit hanging off it? No, pick, no, no. Pickaxe. No, I don't need that shit. Oh, okay. Like, but it's older. What what year is your FJ? It's 2007. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's not like the old. It's not the old. It's old, not the old, yeah, old, not old, the old Jeep looking one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I could use fuel canisters and I wouldn't, wouldn't mind having a Tapui tent. Oh, really? Dude, tell me about the Tapui tent. Oh, really? Why do you, why do you want it? Because he thinks it looks sweet. No. It's like you get one of those, like, oh, I got, now I'm going to head down. Now I'm all ready to go down to the brew pub. No. <laughs> Dude. Most, most of the time <laughs> when I'm going hunting on the weekends, like I'll, I, I, I like to hunt out in eastern Montana a bunch, so we go out there. We'll roll up at like, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night. You, you after, sleep under your vehicle. When I was your age, we slept under our trucks. Oh, we do that sometimes. Or in them. But it, it'd, just you, be, it'd be you, nice. You, you, you slouch in the front seat and sleep. It would be nice when you show up. You're tired. You, last thing you want to do is put up a tent. You just pop up the tapui and go to bed. You get under the vehicle and sleep down there. 
You know, coming from a guy that's uh, been looking at buying a camper. I have mm. young children. Okay. What camper, though? Scamp? I haven't decided yet. But have you looked at the scamp? I had to put it on but hold. I had to put listen, it on hold because I'm in the middle of this crazy boat I have young project. Cho- I have young children, too. But I haven't gotten so soft as to consider the idea of a camper yet. Dude, he's taking a damn man. Chris, is he taking a dig at me? I'm just, I'm, dick, just, I'm just putting it out there that like you know, there's just sort of different levels. You can't say just because you have kids, all of a sudden now it's like okay to have a camper. And because he's 28 and wants a tapui tent, it makes him soft because he doesn't sleep under his truck. Okay, here's okay. I'm gonna put it to rest. No, I'm gonna put it to rest. But here's the thing. <laughs> this I is got, the last you'll okay. say about no. it. <laughs> it's like this. Why? And, and I bring this up. I brought this up a number of times, and we get some things. Why is it that 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 uh, left-wing people tend to have more food allergies than right-wing people. Like, I don't know if that's left, true. Yes. Gluten intolerance is a left-wing ailment. <laughs> okay? Why do old people not like tapui tents? Tapui tents appeal to people to... to uh, they appeal to people of a certain age bracket who live in a certain kind of town. Yeah, but I think that's I'm going to argue that because <laughs> it's true. Because we a guy that owns part of our where our office is is an overlander and is at least ten years our senior, maybe fifteen. Okay, and he rocks a tupui. I mean, but you got to have money to have one of yeah, those. Yeah, that's tents. what I was just going to say. I think those, those overlanding are, and like that is if that's your hobby. You got to have money, man. And you, you that like I mean, you can do it on the cheap. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Also, I think it's like the Instagram sort of thing. You know yes, what I mean? Yes, That's yes. where the young pr- people's element of it comes in. It's like it's an Instagram thing. Dude, I'm an Instagram man, too. I love Instagram at Steve Ronella. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But yeah, you're right. You're right. Oh, it's, yeah. We saw, yeah. You know, I just, like my wife, she doesn't like me talking to waitresses and stuff anymore because I'm just too old, you know? To like have any kind of chit chat she's like at your age if there's an attractive waitress just shut up just like <laughs> just order what you need just order what you need you can't banter anymore you're too old to banter with waitresses uh-huh. and i think i just need to stop talking about this kind of stuff but uh real quick um uh you want to you want to try to sell your thing your car right now your subaru Oh yeah, I got a uh, I got a uh, 2018 Outback, 16,000 miles on it. It's got a topper. It's got a Thule topper. Uh, it's in Los Angeles. Oh, they're not called toppers. Dude, you can't call it a topper. Yeah. What do you tell? What do you call it? Cargo box. A topper. A topper's oh, on a box, pickup yeah. truck. Jeez, oh like no, car, no, it's like bad car talk. I didn't call it topper. I used to call it a pod. It's the a pod. what? I got the pod. The pod on top. No, dude, you got a cargo carrier. Cargo carrier. Whatever it is. <laughs> a rocket little, box. Yeah, it's a rocket box. Uh, yeah, it's in Los what do you Angeles. Need, what do you need for it? It's in Los Angeles. Yeah. The, the, ladies and gentlemen, this is Chris Gill, Ridge Pounder. I'm trying to get 20, 23 to 22 for it. You got any they, good pics of How do they contact Instagram? you? Does you, your Instagram no, I don't, do, you, no. do you have a lot of pictures of you adventuring? No. I don't, <laughs> o- overlanding. I don't, yeah, can it overland? Is it accessorized? <laughs> it's got stock tires uh, and shit. <laughs> no overlanding. So how do they find you if they want to buy your rig? At Christopher Gill on Instagram. Send me a message. You want him to DM you? Yeah. What else we got, Giannis? I got one more. Yeah, we got to get to uh, elk hunting. No, no, but I got one more. One more. Uh, I like to now and then I like to catch up on feedback stuff. A guy wrote in for me. This is a good one because this, this is a segue, Yanni. 
I'm ready. A guy wrote in. He works. He's security. He's like a security guy at Yellowstone National Park. And he gets a complaint. He gets a complaint. He says, like, just last night I had to respond to a noise complaint from a guest. And the noise complaint was, can you please do something about that elk bugling <laughs> near my hotel room? It's driving me crazy. Uh, and I thought that was pretty funny. And also at one point, uh, someone asked the guy, at what elevation do elk turn into moose? Um, but there's this thing, I think there's this thing that keeps happening in Yellowstone where it's a little bit confusing, is where people, there's been a lot in the news of people getting too close. Like this year, like some guy got his little girl like super close to a, a, a bison and it threw her up in the air. Mm-hmm. And it keeps happening and people keep, and it seems like when it happens, there's sort of this thing where people are very quick to condemn the individual and how stupid the individual is for doing something so dangerous, mm-hmm. right? It's like it's the same story. Like this guy in BC just got arrested or got in a bunch of trouble because he got out and was trying to have a, he was trying to box with a grizzly bear. He's trying to taunt a grizzly into a fight, you know? And he got in trouble. And so in like Backpacker Magazine, it's a big thing about what an idiot this guy is and how horrible it is, right? How dangerous it is. But then uh, like when I think about this, people talk about people being dangerous around animals. How can there be that like, there's a movie about a guy that free solos El Cap. It's exceedingly dangerous. It's the most dangerous thing you could do, right? But then he's like celebrated for being dangerous, why is it that you can do that and be celebrated and they're going to give you an Oscar and like you're the coolest thing on the planet and you're going to do all the talk shows, but if you want to box a grizzly, you're like enemy of the people. I think because the dude that climbed that mountain prepared over a lifetime to develop a skill set to then go do said exceptionally dangerous thing. Do you know that the guy that wanted to box the grizzly didn't? I don't. <laughs> yeah. I don't. Yeah, I'm guessing it wasn't Mike Tyson. <laughs> yeah. It's just like this thing that keeps happening, I think. Yeah. I think he's but like, g- I'm like, is danger cool or not cool? Because if, no, yeah, if you want to go pet a buffalo, I'm like, I'm fine. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm for danger. It's not yeah. like you're wanting to stab it. If you want to just go up and see how close and see if it'll gore you, I feel like, like I mean, not with a kid. That, that was egregious and that was like bad call and I don't know anything about the kid's parents. But I just don't think it's like that bad. If, you, if some person, like if an adult, makes a conscious decision to go and taunt an animal and then the animal gores them, I, would, I don't know, man. I look at it like, yeah, you know. I think people get upset own. because you're fucking with an animal. Messing but, with an but animal. You're not, you don't pose any danger to it. Well, I know, but it's like, I think there's, when you compare it to something like Alex Honnold, who's like, that's like his, he's like an athlete. That's like his thing. And there's like that acceptance of, of, risk that he takes you know Mm -hmm. and the people that typically do that i mean sure maybe the guy was preparing for his whole life to box that grizzly bear but was you ever watched the movie grizzly project no but the guy that gets uh in a skirmish with a grizzly and then designs a suit that would allow him yeah yeah he wears survive a grizzly attack stuff yeah and so that guy yeah yeah but then he he couldn't get a bear to attack him when he had his suit on (laughs) 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 it's a great movie yeah, his buddy runs him over in a pickup yeah. just to test the suit. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've seen that guy. <laughs> but go on. I don't know, man. I think that I think people just, when they see people messing with animals, like taunting them to get attacked or something, 
or getting too close, I think they, they get more defensive for the animal and get angry at the person for being, for like, just leave it alone, you know? This, the best they could come up with in this article condemning the guy for wanting to box the grizzly bear, the best they could come up with was that it was bad because the grizzly bear then might expect to box other individuals. Oh, come on. <laughs> who weren't willing participants in the boxing. That's the best they could come up with. And by boxing? With why it's bad to go and like... Do they just mean maul? Yeah, but they, I'm sure that he's not going to box. I, it's just like, a, you, know, I, I, you know, and I used to do it too. Like when someone would get injured by an animal, I'd be like, oh, that idiot. But then I started thinking like, I don't know. I don't think it's safe. To, I don't think it's safe to, to feel that way anymore. You know, like if you get up close to, if you want to go get up close to a moose and see what happens and the moose beats your ass, I think it should just be like, you know, I just feel like it'd be like, oh, that's, that's a decision he came to. It's your decision, man. That's like uh, bull riders. Yeah, exactly. We celebrate Why are they those celebrated. People? Yeah. <laughs> they hop on a, I don't know how, 2,000 pound bull that wants to kick their ass every time. Yeah, I haven't th- sorted it out in my head, but it just occurred to me only yesterday when we were walking around. It occurred to me only yesterday, why does it bother me when I hear about someone doing something stupid in a park? And I started questioning myself, but I don't think bull riders, yeah, I didn't think about that example, but yeah, bull riders aren't. Um, I think people could, I think there's a large group of people that can, that make the argument that, no offense to any bull riders listening, that bull riders have a, they're not, you know, playing with a whole deck don't of cards. Say it's, don't, don't say this. <laughs> don't say this I have like a lot of respect and admiration for bull no, riders no me too man me I'm too, just playing man. devil's advocate I'm just playing devil's advocate I don't have any problem with bull riders yeah I think that's like <laughs> that is like what I would have liked to have done with my life man and you want to talk about I haven't only been on a horse taunt, a taunt, taunt, taunting of animals yeah yes I mean, that's some serious taunting there. Yeah, but I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm totally fine with it. And I'm fine with going up. If you want to go up and pet a buffalo and get smashed, like, <laughs> I just, I'm done acting like, oh, those stupid people, because I get caught in that trap. And the thing is, there's like this thing going on where, there's this thing going on where people are like, oh, and, Ye- you know, in Yellowstone or whatever, in national parks, they're like, people think they're like theme parks. They don't realize that the animals are wild animals. But the, but the, the, the same people who are most likely to point that out in the same institutions that create that thing are actually fostering and developing that sense that wildlife is somehow a theme park. You know, it's coming from the same thing. It's like you're creating this thing and then condemning people for sort of going along with what it is. Like you create an environment where wildlife is totally habituated, but then you get mad at people who think that it's habituated. Mm. It's a good point. Yeah, it's a hard it's a hard thing to um, suss out, man. We used to chase moose. I don't know why. <laughs> That's not smart. No, when we were younger, we would chase them. Yeah. If you saw them, you'd chase them and see how close you'd get to them. Well, if you didn't know they were dangerous. I mean, no, I knew. moose don't seem dangerous. We knew. A lot of people don't know that. It was just like, we're, it was like bull riding. <laughs> it was like bull riding. Yeah. All right, Yanni, kick us off on what we're supposed to talk about. Sometimes the bull chases you, though, doesn't it, Steve? Mm-hmm. Um, Colorado elk hunting. So oh, in Colorado. Can I throw, over one, can I throw out one more? You should, Listener yeah. feedback one. Last one. This is the last one. This is a good one. I was talking about my brother-in-law hitting a bluegill when he was barefoot skiing. A guy rode in. He was at a ski tournament, 
And um, he had a bad fall and broke a couple of vertebrae and he doesn't ski anymore. But he was at a tournament on Pearl River in Louisiana one time. And there was a guy doing some warm-up runs and he ran over an alligator and it removed the right heel of his foot. Oh. oh. 40 miles an hour hit an alligator, peeled his heel off. That's the last bit of listener feedback. Oh, man. I, I have to add that one of the greatest, like, seeds of fear that I feel like was ever planted in me as a kid is I grew up in the Bay Area, California, and Tahoe's, you know, up the hill in the Sierras. We'd go up there skiing and trout fishing and stuff like that. My dad shared a story with me. I'm, I don't know why it wouldn't be true, but that, you know, the rattlesnakes up there in the winter will find a den, you know, den up, 100, whatever, a couple hundred rattlesnakes in the den. They stay warm through the winter. And that somehow on Donner Lake. Oh, which, but they're cold-blooded. Huh? Do rattlesnakes keep serving warm? But no, I know they curl up in a or, ball. Or den up. Yeah, I, yeah. I, mean, I, might not, I might not have the right reason for them doing that, but they den up. That's, yeah, that's for that's certain. For I've never certain. seen it, but I've heard enough about it that it's like they like to ball up. Ball up. And that apparently Donner Lake, which is right, you know, before you get to Tahoe Lake on the way up into the Sierras, some manner of the snowfall and runoff brought one of these balls of rattlesnakes <laughs> into Donner Lake. And that maybe this is one of my dad that told me this. Now as I'm saying it, I don't feel like this is something my dad would say, but that a water skier fell into that, water skiing in the lake, fell into that, and the snakes just started like lighting them up. The snakes had gone into the lake. It's definitely not my dad as I hear myself telling this story. But as a kid... Stuck in your mind. Oh, my. I mean, I never, it, never would I, I think in the rest of my life, be up on a pair of water skis or up doing something on a lake where I d d have not at least committed a moment's thought to the idea of a ball of rattlesnakes being floating <laughs> out there. <somewhere. laughs> horrible. Horrible. I, I probably, have I told a story about the time Matt tried to catch a snake out of a hole? No. He, my brother was hunting and a snake, he sees a rattlesnake going into a hole. And he never eaten a rattlesnake. He always wanted to eat a rattlesnake. So he grabs the back end of the rattlesnake Eesh. and tries to get it back out of the hole. But the snake breaks and out comes a couple baby rattlesnakes oh. that attack him. Whoa. Yeah. He says they come out of there and instantly are coming at him. trying to out of the snake that broke yes. in half. Yes. Whoa. Trying to bite him. Wait, the snakes came out of the other snake. Yeah. <laughs> he was trying to jack this snake up out of a hole. <sighs> Couldn't get it out of the hole. Broke the snake. Out came some snakes who were then coming at him. And then he had the tail. The one, he had the, you know, and then it, it goes on from there. That's some this, nightmare stuff, man. Oh, yeah, yeah that, that is horrifying. Did he man. eat them all? And I don't remember. He was, re he was reminiscing about this the other day. Yeah, I was, he was telling me that story the other day. Am I getting it right? Yeah. So the way you're saying baby Something snakes like <laughs> pop out and they're ready to attack. Yes. That is some total recall. And if I'm um, not mistaken, I believe they say those are the ones you got to watch out for, right? Because they can't control their, their venom. I've heard that might be a misnomer. That, that, that is? That, well, that maybe they can't control the venom, but that is, it is genuinely just builds up to the bigger the snake, the more venom is coming at is, it is being produced inside the body, which makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. But I've heard that many, many times. Okay, Yanni, intro the show. Intro the show. I'm here with uh, Steven Ranella. Nope, as I'm dealing cards, we like to do here. Danny Schmidt is on his first ever meat eater shoot. Cameraman. 
Yep, cameraman. Uh, give it. Give us a quick run. Give us a quick uh, career synopsis. <clears throat> oh man, well, you do a lot of wildlife work. I do a lot of wildlife work. I do a lot of science work, sci-com, sort of science communication stuff. Although science comedy. Ah, yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's all funny. It's kind of like rom-coms. Sci-com. Sci-com. Uh, science communication. Science communication. Yeah. Yeah. I went to school for documentary film for scientists. So. Yeah, I have a lot of background in communicating about science and working outside. And uh, yeah, first meat eater went pretty well. You like Thrasher's Instagram page? Yeah. Because you like to look at cool skate videos. I watch skate videos pretty much all day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I haven't worked in skateboarding film yet, but I think it'd be sweet. You know what I didn't get a sense from uh, is you've you've had a lot of, uh, through your work, you've had a lot of intersections with wildlife politics and whatnot. But then I haven't gotten a sense over the last few days of you being like outwardly opinionated about wildlife politics. Have you just been biting your tongue as we're always spouting off about how everything ought to be with animals? No, I mean... I, I, Have I said anything that was deeply offensive? <laughs> no, I haven't been offended yet. Huh. Uh, well, I mean, it's not black and white. I think we've talked a lot about elk. And the feed grounds in Wyoming, and I think that's a super gray situation. And you worked on a project down here about wolf reintroduction. I did. I can't talk a whole lot about it. Oh, but, sorry. Uh, yeah. I don't like it. It doesn't matter what I think. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I worked on a project about wolf reintroduction, the, the thought of wolf reintroduction in Colorado. Did you get into the pros and cons? Oh, for sure. I got you. Yeah. You did some feedlot, some stuff about elk, feeding elk during the winter. Did a bit. My second year project in film school was about the elk feed grounds in Jackson. And I went into that like, I think I had 5,000 bucks to make this film. Totally like went in. I didn't know a whole lot about it except that there, these feed grounds existed. There's 25,000 elk being fed every year in Wyoming. And obviously that's going to present a lot of problems. But man, once I dug into it, it was, there's a lot more to it than just stopping feeding elk. Yeah. So, well, it started out as you, as I'm sure you're uh, well aware. Tell us why it started out. Well, it started out <clears throat> because the city of Jackson Hole, the town of Jackson Hole, was trying to form. It was in the early 1900s, and it was kind of one of the last places where wildlife could live, bison and elk. And they it was the era of Teddy Roosevelt and they wanted to keep these animals around there was a conservation ethic that was developing and uh but they these farmers and ranchers also needed this great winter habitat to raise their cattle and so they decided they could feed the elk over here and still maintain these herds and keep the elk out of their out of their winter range and out of their hay in order to decrease tensions. In order to decrease tensions, yep, keep them separate. And so, a hundred years later, that situation still exists, and there's less and less winter range for these elk. Uh, and in that time, the people of Wyoming have gotten used to having a huge elk population. But every piece of alfalfa you put out there creates, is, is essentially, it's like making habitat that doesn't really exist, right? So... Not to mention the hunters in Wyoming love to have that massive herd. And so to undo this 100-year policy of feeding elk all over the state is super, super tough. 
but along the way these elk have i mean they're they're perpetuating a lot of disease right brucellosis and scabies and foot rot and of course the big threat is chronic wasting disease makes it to one of these feed grounds and that's like a time bomb like nobody knows what that would do what it would look like is it going to kill all the elk what's the prevalence rate in a herd like that but wildlife disease experts will tell you like concentrate any animal artificially with huge numbers in a place that can't hold them and you're going to get diseases are going to pop off so yeah i made this film it's on pbs oh uh, it is it's called feeding the problem i got 100 dvds in a box Dude, that's, a, that's a very <laughs> leading if anybody that's wants a very one. leading <laughs> title man yeah yeah you know you come right out punching with that title <laughs> so i tried to make a film that was that was pretty balanced i interviewed a bunch of ranchers and outfitters and scientists and feed ground managers but obviously i went into it thinking you know i come from a science background i thought this is, seems like a bad idea it doesn't seem natural obviously it's a it's entrenched politically but there's got to be some way to sort of back out of it and find some middle ground so anyway i made this movie premiered it in jackson hole and that premiere was such a trip because i had like the whole anti-feed ground establishment come to this premiere it was at the wildlife art museum in jackson and then I didn't know this was going to happen, but I had like the whole hunting, guiding, ranching community also show up. They were pissed. They were pissed. <laughs> Good. Yeah, I had somebody come up to me. We had a reception beforehand. I had these guys come up to me and they're like, you know, we've been talking about stringing you up for making this film. Whoa. And I'm like, holy shit. First of all, you can make your own film that says whatever you want. Like anybody can make a film. And I wasn't throwing anybody under the bus. I gave everybody a chance to spout off about whatever they wanted. And, uh, man, it was a good lesson. It was a good, like, my first my first foray into documentary about a sticky, controversial subject. And I think it moved the needle forward a little bit. I think it got the conversation going. They sell the DVDs in the National Elk Refuge gift shop. Do they? Yeah. yeah. In, the, in the Elk Refuge gift shop? Yeah. I mean, because I interviewed like the elk refuge manager, and like a, you know, it it was a kind of a a big deal during the year that we were filming down there. Yeah. So when you're out filming with us now, uh, do you feel it's just like rinky dink fluff BS? You can't really. You're not gonna be able to answer that honestly. I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> you, no, I don't think so. You know, I, I'm interested in any and everyone's interpretation of of experiencing nature. Yeah. So whether it's a birder or an elk hunter or a scientist tagging buffalo or whatever it might be, like I think it's all interesting and part of the big picture of how humans and nature intersect. So yeah, you meet us had a big argument about uh, Doug Peacock. Doug Peacock. Yeah. Right. Let's not recap it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. As though dealing poker. Yeah. Seth Morris. Howdy, folks. Flip flop flasher. Flasher. Flip flop flasher. Yep. Seth was just talking about his favorite sound is the sound of a hog pulling his head out of a feed bin. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Music to my ears. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'll just leave that one. Yeah. You, if you need to know, you can write them in. That's like do <laughs> do dollars, <laughs> coins is dropping into if the you know, bucket. If you, know what, if you know it, you know it. I'll just, leave, I'll just say that. <laughs> uh, Rourke Denver. <laughs> Rourke, give how, people a quick how, recap. You've been on the show before a long time ago. Yep. That was a very pop when you were on, uh, it was a very popular show for us. Awesome. People liked it. I like that. Yep. Life of service. Yep, yep, yep. Explain your deal. Yeah, man. Uh, 
I, I feel like even though I'm not on the payroll, fa- you know, family member of Meat Eater now, I hope I, I, I'm on that ledger. Yes. Uh, met you guys through uh, some work you and I, you know, Steve and I have been doing with the knife company, and then we bumped our way into a show hunting bears up up in Alaska and then have just stayed, you know, connected and built friendship and relationships with the whole crew. And my, my last life was a commander in the, in the SEAL teams. So I spent 20 years, 13 active duty years, 20 total years with my time in the reserves, both running assault teams and then kind of running the training for the basic and advanced course of SEALs and how they, how they become SEALs and get to the battlefield and go do the nation's work. And I'm a writer, uh, thinker, savage, gentleman. Tell the books. Damn Few is the first book, Making the Modern SEAL Warrior, which talks a, a little bit autobi- autobiographical, but very much unlike well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that, how they compare to other SEAL books. Very much trying to hit the high points of what I learned philosophically and what I believed in and what I think SEALs believe in and why they, why they do, do, do what they do, what, why we do what we do, how we feel about our families, how we feel about service, the country, um, how we impact the world. So I talked a lot about that. And then the second book's called Worth Dying For, A Navy SEAL's Call to a Nation. And that one is a little bit more outward looking as far as you know, where the country's going and security throughout the world. Talk, uh, talk about my experiences on the battlefield. I talk about, I have a whole chapter on killing, which is one of my favorite chapters, just kind of organically came up in the writing of it. And um, I take that pretty seriously. So yeah, those are, the, those are the reads. And now I do a lot of speaking in the kind of corporate space and trying to figure out what that next ridge line is. I, I, I enjoy that. I'll keep doing that. If you, if you call, I'm coming, uh, you know, if you're the right, the right people to talk to, but I'm, I'm, uh, I feel like I'm at a transitional point as to what's, uh, what's the next adventure. Yeah. You know what? Do two things too. We talked about it before we do it again. Yeah. Talk about the, talk about the movie you guys had to do, uh-huh. which is funny. Not funny, but like, it's a funny story. Yeah. Like yeah. how it came about and the, the repercussions of it. Yeah. And then, and then talk about your speaking thing. Cause people should know about that. Yeah. Uh, act of valor was the movie 2012 ish. Bunch of us were, you know, at the training compound, running training for the SEALs. So you're in about as close to a nine to five job as you can get if you're a SEAL operator. You know, if you're at the team, you're just preparing for war, at war, coming back, unpacking your gear, clean it, and getting ready to go to war again. When you go to a training compound, you're kind of that spot where you're raising up the young lines and evaluating them and figuring out who's going to make it through the program and get to uh, um, get to the assault teams. And so, but that job is, you know, hard pointed there in San Diego, and you're not going to, uh, you know, unless we go to war with North Korea or something, then probably everybody's going, you're there. So you have an opportunity to do other things, I guess, if, if you want to do that in your life. And so this film company had come in to do, just help upgrade a website, you know, the SEALs. This was all amongst, this was pre the Bin Laden raid, right in around the time of Captain Phillips and all that stuff. So, I mean, I think the SEAL, the SEAL stock or, you know, kind of notoriety was, was becoming more, there's more awareness of it, but still pretty much uh, in the shadows. And then, um, you know, the Laden raid obviously blew it wide open, but our, our organization was actually losing more people or not getting enough new folks coming into the training program as we're kind of getting older and trailing off. So we were having a recruiting problem. We we just, and, and there really wasn't enough about what seals do on the battlefield or what we do as a community that would lend to someone knowing, Oh, I want to go do that for a living and, and hopefully the right people. A, a recruiting problem because what's the, what's the pass rate of people who even enter the elimination? About 20% make it. So about 75, 80% attrition through training over, you know, since the second. So you got to generate big numbers. It helps to have good numbers. 
the right numbers is probably the better way to put it. Okay. You know, like, can you get the right product to the front door, hoping you get more out the back door? We haven't figured out a way to skin that cat. It's, it's kind of one of those things where we've, we've had scientists and sports physiologists and witch doctors in that place looking at what's going <laughs> to get somebody through training, and nobody's – I mean, everybody has their own opinion as to what it takes. And um, it's hard to kind of quantify because you have so many different personalities that come to that place and so many different personalities come through. There, there's obvious – elements that you have to have grit toughness focus no quit kind of in your dna but i mean that, people come at that from a lot of different places i mean i came from a very healthy kind of growth and environment and parents and family very very competitive athletically but i mean i have buddies that you know had parents that just beat on them and said you'd never be nothing you'll never amount to nothing and they're pretty tough to beat in training too so it's all over i got an acquaintance who made it through and I was asking about what he felt that it was, and he said it was because he liked to surf a lot. <laughs> and, uh, he said he just didn't mind sitting in cold water for a long time. If you can <laughs> sit in cold water for a long time, that's going to give you a tremendous leg up. That's, that's probably what gets rid of most people. But So anyway, this film company came in to kind of help build a website and a little bit of this is who we are, what we do, and you know if you want to come do it, here's how, here's how, here's how to call us kind of thing. And then somehow that morphed into this idea of doing a bigger film. So the film company actually interviewed about 30 of us at the basic training compound just to do background knowledge of, of what makes SEALs SEALs, you know, where you came from, what you believe in, how you feel about your family, the country, so on and so forth. Not very much in the weeds on operational stuff, but it, it, it drifted into that. Very casual. Like all of us went down the beach, you know, sitting in front of a camera, just like we did the past couple of days, talked a little bit about. But this is all something you're being asked to do. Told to do. Yeah. Told, oh, okay. told yeah. to do. Told to do. Yeah. That was not, that was not, not an invitation to go, to go out <laughs> on the beach and do that. But at that point, it was just, this is just, it's never going to be used for anything. They're going to film it so they can kind of make sure they get it right when they go to make this movie. They, they were going to finish those interviews, go back up to LA and start trying to find the right Hollywood person to play us or play the guys. And when they got done with those interviews, went back to LA, LA, did all the editing, the two directors were like, I think it's going to be easier to teach SEALs to act than actors to be SEALs if we want to get this right. And so then they came and asked us to do it. Everybody to a man said no. Every single person that was in that film said, absolutely not. It's not what we do. But then senior leadership put a little more pressure on, like it's going to happen. And so one of, my, one of my teammates that was in the movie, he made a really good comment one morning when we were getting coffee. He said, you know, he said, one of the problems I see that is going to happen is I know who you are, sir. Like I know your background. I know the way the boys feel about you. I know the way I feel about you. I know your combat record and, and, and you know, the teams you've been with, which, you know, are, are pretty serious teams that have done good things on the battlefield. And everybody that they've asked are those guys. If we say no, like if, if, if we don't do it, they're going to get six, seven guys to do it. It will be the worst people in the community that say yes. Like for sure, it'll be the guys that already have the Facebook page and an agent and want to go to Hollywood and will use that as a launch pad. And he's like, and that is going to be a train wreck. We'll have the worst people in our community representing the community. And that, that actually resonated. I, I'd already gone back to grad school. I knew at that point I was kind of ready to go make my way. I wanted to be around my bride, my kiddos, and it was time for something new. I'd done, I turned over every stone I wanted to turn over in my, my, my SEAL experience. You know, everything beyond that, which is not to say I wouldn't have learned a lot more and it would have been purposeful, good work beyond that. It, it, it was just time. I didn't, I, I was ready to go. And so I didn't really think, oh, well, this movie will kick over tons of, kick open tons of doors. I mean, we thought they were going to make that movie and it was going to go straight to like the bottom bin of a DVD, like two buck 
you know, Walmart. Binge. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're like, there's no way this thing, it ends up being the number one movie in America. <laughs> you know, major <laughs> theatric release and, and whatever. So, um, so yeah, we, we participated in that. We tried to get but you guys, right. you guys did, uh, we talked about this before too, but I think it's the funniest part of the thing is you did, it was all military pay. Oh yeah, man. We got, we got military <laughs> pay and three square meals a day, man. No. You guys didn't get like, <laughs> no. Really? Any it's so in- funny, man, that you get yeah. to be in like this big movie that's in all yeah. these theaters all over the place. Oh, my God, man. Yeah. And you're getting your little, not your little check, but you're just, there's no like. No, no. I mean, I, I think uh, I think all, well, I shouldn't speak for anybody else. I felt good about it because it felt like since we were put on orders, it felt like any other job that somebody would have asked, that, that they would have asked us to do in the military and being based on, you know, my job, like, hey, go do that. That's what we get paid to do. So we're going to go do that. It happened to be making a movie. <laughs> did anybody <laughs> made a lot of other people a lot of money <laughs> did anybody that was in that movie uh launch an acting career um you know i got a lot of i guess offers afterwards or opportunity to go do it it just didn't appeal to me i mean it wasn't something i i like um i mean i like you know doing stuff like this i like you know speaking and talking and um you know i've done a tv show since and if the right project came up i'd do it again acting like actual just acting as a as a um you know, character actor had no appeal to me whatsoever. I think, you know, a bunch of the, bunch of the guys were extras in Transformers movies and all that kind of stuff. Operators, not major roles, but in that stuff. But I don't think anybody parlayed it into an actual, um, career. I mean, a bunch of the guys stayed, you know, I mean, I, I stayed for, I stayed for two years after that. I thought I was going to get out right away. I actually stayed two years longer. Did people dog on you for doing it? It, it, you know, the thing that was good about it is, yes, of course, of course. <laughs> the nice thing was, in general, after the initial busting of balls and giving you a hard time, it kind of came back to what that buddy of mine, who's a mass chief now, said. And they're like, well, I'll tell you what, man, if somebody's going to do it, I'm glad you were repping us as opposed to, yeah. you know, somebody else. Um, I had some other question about that. Now I can't remember what the hell it was. About the fallout, not the fallout, but just the repercussions of doing it. Yeah, I don't know. you know there 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 are good arguments across the board on both. You know, doing it, not doing it. I mean, the the back end of how many good young lions now came to the program because of that. Oh, was that was my off, question. Great, that's what charts. I meant to ask. Was was it regarded as a successful move for recruitment? Like overwhelmingly so. Got a bunch of people into the door. Yeah, like we had to start at the door. We had to start creating. Well, what it allowed us to do is instead of having a pool of candidates that we didn't really know who they were before, once they entered the program as best we could evaluate them, we actually had to almost establish another program to weed and kind of pick the best 150 or some odd guys to go to each class. And there's only seven classes that go through a year. And so we were able to actually select now what we thought would be the best candidates. So to try and get better people to the front door to get more to the back door. It, it moved the needle a little bit on graduation rates, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, it, it worked. I mean, it definitely worked. That's no, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As though dealing poker. Rich? I'm supposed to introduce myself. Yeah, and you're kind of like done working for us now. No, that, man, come on. <laughs> I'm glad I got the last one. Chris, uh, yeah, he's got some. He can't tell us what he's going to do because he's got some NDA. That's all right. There's like an NDA. Non-disclosure agreement. Yeah, I can't talk about it. Kind of like Danny can't talk about his wolf project. Yeah, yeah. Signed it. I'd get in trouble if I start talking about. So it. listeners that have grown accustomed to your presence are just going to be deprived of you now. Yeah, they're just going to have to try to buy my Subaru. 
<laughs> hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and then even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right, Yanni, kick it off. Because it's kind of your project down here, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was my project. We've been trying to get this hunt done for... uh, a few years, at mm-hmm. least three, right? Yep. I didn't know that. Yeah. 
Um, and we messed up because we didn't know, uh, we didn't understand the Colorado draw system well enough. Um, because you, you're a non-resident, Rourke's a resident of Colorado, and you guys are applying as a group, which and what was happening in Colorado, there's a preference point system when you try to draw a tag that is um, a, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Limited entry limited, per Limited, yeah, limited tag, right? So I was just going to say demand. how good of a job you were doing. There's more demand yeah. than opportunity. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, there's preference points. So once you get preference points, if you have two and your buddy only has one, you're going to draw it before they do. And so however many people put in with the most points, they're going to get all the tags before the, the lower numbers. Well, when you guys put in as a group, um, you guys are taking like a double hit because Rourke was being put in as a non-resident because you go, sort of go to the lowest common denominator. So you were go, he was getting put in as a non-resident. Because he was thrown in with a non-resident. Yeah. And they didn't want to elevate. Conversely, you'd have to elevate the non-resident to resident status, which is going to piss people off. Totally. And you had like two or three or maybe even four more points than Rourke to draw the tag. But because you guys were getting put in together, you guys were put, getting put in at the lowest amount of points. So whatever Rourke had is what you guys were putting in Oh, they in go at. lowest, lowest. Yeah. Lowest common They take the lowest both. status and apply the lowest points. Yes. Man. Yeah. Real Which kick is to the, the same, nuts. same thing that was happening at the. At, um, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Paralleling this, it was happening to me and my buddy Ethan, who now I'm going hunting with next month in Colorado, because we were doing the same thing, putting in as a group. And every year we're like, man, we should be drawing. What is the problem? And then as soon as we didn't do it as a group, we drew, as did you and Rourke. Oh, so we weren't in as a team? Nope. And how many, uh, uh, how many, I can't remember how many points I had. Four or five? Yeah. Man, that's depressing <laughs> to think about. Did you burn that many points? Yeah. Oh, man. The thing is, in Colorado, I don't know if you would have gotten much better. There might have been an archery hunt that we could have done that would have been limited entry, and that would have actually limited people. But I think where... I messed up in picking out this. I, I had a, local, a, a buddy that lives here. Wish he could have joined us today, but he had to head back to Denver. Um, but he hunts rifle seasons here, right? And he's had very good experiences hunting during uh, first rifle here. And so we just figured, well, heck, muzzle loader should be even better. Basically get to hunt with a rifle during the rut. Well, what we didn't factor in at all, and he couldn't really speak to it because he hasn't been in the woods that much this time of year. Well, it's not like hunting with a rifle because, I mean, Colorado, pressure. we should point out, yeah. It's it's not, but because it's... Because Colorado doesn't allow you, you can't put a scope on your muzzleloader. That's right. Your muzzleloader has to be true to caliber projectile, which means you have a, a, a pretty, you know, slow traveling slug. Yeah. And you got to use open sights. Yeah. So you're not like licking ticks with the thing. You're, you're not. Um, but compared to the average archery hunter, yeah. you're... Should be at least doubling your range, maybe tripling your range. Yep. And you don't need to draw your damn bow back. That's right. When that thing's standing there. All you gotta do is cock When that thing's standing there on high alert, you don't need to do a big elaborate movement. Right. You can just get all ready. Yeah. And not have to do anything. But what we didn't factor in is the archery pressure. Because in Colorado, it's over the counter archery in most units, I would say. That's gotta, it's gonna change and it has a change. It already did in some units, um, like where I used to live up there in Eagle County, um, some of the units there. Like if you, I think you're going to draw it, like this year, if you applied, you probably drew it, but you couldn't hunt anywhere else. Like once you drew that tag, that, like that's where it was good for it. You couldn't hunt the whole state anymore. 
So I think they're going to start doing that more and more. Um, to yeah, it's just going to have to be limited opportunity. I feel like they got to, yeah, I think they're going to have to reckon with, um, they're curious about like Hunter satisfaction. Yes. I think they're going to have to, uh, I would imagine if you were to poll people who hunted over the last week around this unit about Hunter satisfaction, I think that you would find. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, listen, I, I posted a picture of us and just sent, said that we were hunting in the uh, San Juan Mountains on Instagram. And while we've been here, I got two um, emails from friends of ours that were here earlier in the season, just archery elk hunting, that had the exact same experience. Just like tons of dudes everywhere. And guys that were on mules 10 miles into the backcountry and were just like, holy shit, can't believe how many people we're running into. I've never, um, I've never seen anything like it. No, we've hunted some high-pressure stuff. Um, and again, you know, not having, I mean, although we did have some local knowledge, not having personal local knowledge of a spot, it's, uh, it's a huge advantage, you know? We all know that, you know? I mean, I hunted heavily pressured Colorado stuff for 15 years and had pretty high success. Yeah, once you get to know an area super good, you just make the pressure work for you. Yeah, you know, um, but, uh, yeah, this was, uh, yeah. Cause I think we should sort of explain the amount, like sort of paint the picture of the amount of pressure, but we were going to trailheads or not even trailheads, but, but parking areas at the end of, uh, logging roads, four, five, six vehicles, camps with multiple RVs, tents, um, gnarly roads too. Not like just like a normal yeah. forest service road, like rutted out. Yeah, tough to and, get and in if roads. It, and if it was like a better, like an improved Forest Service road, I mean, seriously, we did one like it was the first night that we were out, and I mean, it was every possible turn off to where you're like, it was almost like going down a river where you're like looking, and you can kind of see the next truck, and you're like, yeah, that gives me like enough space to jump in the river, and I'm not going to be like crowding this guy. That's how it was. It was like every half mile there'd be another truck, you know? And yeah, Rich get- Pounder observed that when you're in Colorado, it always feels like you're in someone's backyard. Yeah. Yeah. No, we've talked about it before, man. It's ground zero. Gra- ground zero here for uh loving it to death. Mm-hmm. Um and everybody hopefully all the other Western states are gonna be able to see how Colorado handles it and be able to, you know, a- adjust and figure things out. It's but, a conundrum, man, because yeah. you got like the funding problem where the state they need to like hunters fund Colorado's wildlife program. Mm-hmm. hunters fund a lot of like public land stuff habitat improvement disease research enforcement like all that stuff comes from hunter funding and the more hunters you got coming through the door the more funding you got especially non-resident hunters yeah and so you need the money and i'm sure there's this thing that like man we can open it up and have it be over the counter and have like and, and hit revenue objectives yeah but well, at they a point can, they you, can do it here too because they still have you know twice as many elk as the next state the closest state as far as elk population goes right yeah but they're good at hiding yeah and i think in rifle seasons it's worked i mean second season it'd be interesting to see this year because i think back in the day like out of the two hundred sixty thousand, what was that i can't remember the number now i think it was that we get a quarter million non-resident hunters or hunters in total here in colorado for big game and like sixty thousand of them would all come during second rifle season it's like a major chunk of that whole number all came for the same week right 
really interesting to see this year if like that got spread out a little bit over the archery season. Because we heard anecdotally that a neighboring unit, a guy from a uh, taxidermy shop or a license sale shop, where was that story? The guy that said that. Oh, uh, my buddy the other day killed a bear and took his bear in to get checked. Yeah. And got the yakking with the the guy that checked, the, the warden that checked his bear. And the warden told him. But I don't know what the point, what the baseline point was. that The warden told him that archery tag sales were up 7x. But I don't know 7x from when, 1970? Or, I don't know, I don't really know what that means. There's no way they're up like 7x from last year. You don't think? I'd have a hard time believing it. I mean, remember Seven what, times more people from a year before? I don't know what that means. Remember what happened when uh, Colorado uh, dropped their... I mean, this is, again, just applications, right? But when they dropped the, the non-resident um, requirement to send in a $2,000 check to ap- apply for moose, goat, and sheep, yeah, they did that for one year, and it went like... It wasn't 7x, it was like 300x. Oh, do a better job Just of explaining flood- that. To do a better job of explaining it. Flooded. So, Yanni's a tag <sighs> consultant. No, not really. I'll do my best, though. Um, You're tearing it up, man. You had that one little thing you missed. You couldn't think of, uh, <laughs> can't remember. What couldn't you think of, Rich? I don't know, man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're not paying attention. Not paying attention. <laughs> He's already getting DMs about that Subaru. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's like 22 and you got a, you got a deal. <laughs> Cash, though. Um, when I first started applying for moose, sheep, and goat in Colorado, a non, and I was a resident, but non-residents would have to send in a check for, I think it was roughly $1,800 if you wanted to participate in the draw. And most of the time, you're just participating to get a preference point. And so you build up a certain amount of points, and then maybe when you send in the check, you're actually hoping that- Yeah, how many points are you, you sitting on right now? You might draw. The two I've kept up with, I, I kind of quit doing goat- um, the two I've kept up with, moose and sheep, I bet you I'm at close to 10. Okay. We're in there. Yeah. So there's a chance. At least with, well, we won't get into that. But uh, so anyways, you used to have to send in. So if you wanted to do, so when I moved away to participate in moose and sheep, I had to yank out $3,600 for a couple months, you know? And when that hits the bank account, your gal's like, hi, hey, what? And you're like, oh, no, it's, just, it's coming back. Don't worry about it. But it's not like you could just stick it on a credit card. They didn't accept credit cards. You had to send in the money so that if you drew, they had your money, they give you the tag. Because then they don't got to be like, hey, you won. Yeah. And then the dude's like, oh, I actually have no possible means by which That's I right. pay for that That's right. Hold on a second. I got to sell my Subaru and then I'm going <laughs> to pay you guys. <laughs> um, yeah, so that limited a lot of people from applying, especially non-residents, from applying and, and, and gaining points. So... For whatever reason, I think that Colorado probably felt like they were limiting the amount and they wanted more people to be participating. And so they, no, you know what ended up actually happening is that uh, what it was costing Colorado Parks and Wildlife to do the processing and then mail out all the refund checks was such a large sum of money that they're like, this system isn't working. And so they reworked it all. There was the conspiracy theory. Right. Prior people, to. It was funny because people would say like, oh, the reason they do that is how much money they make in interest, where for some two months or whatever, they're sitting on all these millions of dollars. And then it comes out that it costs them an enormous amount of money to process all this stuff, issue paper checks. Mm-hmm. Like there's no money making going on. Yeah, just the postage to you know, you know. Sh- sh- send everything back. So one year they drop it to like where it's just wide open. Everybody can apply for like, and put it on their credit card 
you still had to uh, you know put up the money, but you could put it on a credit card. And I think that you, it only, the fee was only a few dollars, and it went up something like three hundred percent the amount of applicants. Like it just like everybody just got in. We're like, sure, we can apply now, and it won't cost me but a couple bucks, and and it'll you know a little bit of interest on my credit card for a few months, and so it just flooded them. So then the next year. Then they changed it again. And so I, I can't remember because now it's only been a year or two with the new system. But now I think that as a non-resident, I'm paying, I think, maybe $100 per species per year per, to get a point to participate. And so they, they, you know, they try to find a middle ground. Like they're still getting money coming in, but not as, not as many people swamping the system. Like I said, I'm doing my best here. I'm sure that there's some dude at Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Oh, I'm sure there's people at Colorado <laughs> Parks. No, you know what I think people at Colorado Parks and Wildlife are thinking when they listen to this? And and a bunch of them do. I think they're thinking like, yeah, man, it's like there's, there's like something that needs to be sorted out. Yeah. 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 There's a, and, there's a, and again, it's just the amount of people and it's a great place to hunt. And, you know, people want to come hunt here. But there's the whole uh, thing that's called preference point creep here in this state where like and that's why we by saving too many points if you're starting out now in colorado doesn't do you much good because the again the amount of demand that's 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 there every single year if this unit this year was five points let's just say for the muzzleloader hunt next year it might jump up to six point minimum and then seven point minimum so if you have three this year and next year you have four but the cap is at seven it just moves along ahead of you and you're never going to catch up. And there's a lot of units in Colorado that that's happening in. And it, it pushes people to the open units. Well, sure. But they're just, people are just like, they're upset and they're frustrated because they're like, man, I have, you know, some people have 20 years of, of applying and money put into it. And they're seeing this point creep happening and they're like, there's no end in sight. And I'm never going to draw a tag because there's, and you can look at all the numbers. If you have 21 points, you can see that in whatever fancy unit you're applying for, how many people applied with more points ahead of you and how, many pe- how big that pool is. So there might have been 5,000 people that applied with 23 points. And if those 5,000 people keep applying for that same unit and there's only 10 tags issued a year, it takes a lot of years until yeah. that, that pool falls out and you know, people are going to die with 30 points in Colorado, you know? What do you think about that, Rich Pounder? You never put in for a tag in your life. No, but you know what I do think about it? It sounds a lot like airline status <laughs> <laughs> and playing that game, man. And I play that game hard. <laughs> yeah, like when you get, like, I could go into the Delta Lounge Oh, my now. God, yeah. The most crowded place in the Air Force, the Delta Lounge. Oh, it's yeah. the best, though, dude. <laughs> you go in there, it's like, it's like, hold on, how is everybody... What? Why like is everybody the you know Delta Lounge? What, you know, I got some fancy lounge now too through Amex though. But Steve and I are always flying oh, that's together. That's like Priority Pass or something. Yeah, but it's like, what are we gonna do? Like land in an airport and Steve's gonna go to the Delta Lounge well, and usually, then I'm gonna go to a different one. Usually, if one of you has access to a lounge, they let you have a buddy. No, twenty nine bucks. What? From yeah, where? the Delta. So if you're gonna go in there, if you know you're gonna go in there and have a meal and have a couple uh, brewskis. Wait, Delta charges you 29 bucks yes, to bring a buddy to in? To bring your partner in. Or your wife. Or your kids. Dude, I'm sticking or with Or like American. an alien, probably. $29. It's ridiculous. Yeah, that's a little off topic. Uh, so yeah, back, a lot of pressure here. And uh, that, I was not expecting it, man. No, it we took, thought we were going to be into some, because man, I, we thought we were going to be in some rip-roaring bugle fest, man. 
Yeah, with muzzle loaders in hand, nonetheless. Um, Burned all my points. How many bugles? I'm gonna put in for a point refund. What's that? (laughs) Heard a couple bugles. Yeah, watched. Not many. Watched a bull silently bugle. Yeah, that's cool to see. I think that that happens. It's been. I mean, first time I saw it was probably close to 20 years ago. Do everything but make the noise. Yeah, and the the way I could tell because I couldn't figure out what I was looking at and it was the night before season I was just out with a client or two for just a walk and we decided to sit in this place called the uh the cafe everybody used to meet there for lunch midday that's how it got that name and uh we're sitting there and of course night before season just the whole herd pops in the wind swirling every direction and they're like hey we don't care you know just out in the <laughs> middle for like an hour and it, the, the temperature dropped just enough to where when he would make that posture, you could see the steam coming out of his mouth like he should be bugling. You can see he's pushing air out of his mouth. Really? Yet there was no sound. I think eventually he did that three or four, maybe a half dozen times. And eventually I could just hear like a... You no know, kidding, like, Yeah, man. there was some sound coming out. Because again, they, they have to bugle at those cows, right? As they're trying to court them, hair them. Them, whatever they're doing, you know, push them around, trying to breed them. I think that it, it, there's a certain, without trying to anthropomorphize too much, but there's trying to show some respect to keep them around, to not run them off, you know? But Really? Uh, yeah. Huh. But if you bugle real loud, every other bull in the zone is like, oh, you got a bunch of ladies down there? I'll come check that out and try to steal them and mess with you and, you know. Yeah, like if you're like a, you know, if you're a young single guy, and you go, like, you just stumble into the bar at night, and it's you and, like, 20 women. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're going to then call your buddies and be like, hey. <laughs> guess what? You'll never guess what's happening down here. No. Maybe one. Just- <laughs> <laughs> if it was 20 to 1, I might call one or two of my best friends. But, yeah. You'd be like, turn my phone off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Two interesting things about the San... Uh, we, we can speak generally about the San Juans. Oh, for sure. Two good stories about the San Juans. Um, one is the and we, uh, the grizzly bear story down here. Mm-hmm. Where, um, you know, grizzlies once upon a time, 150 years ago, uh, could be found all the way down into Sonora, Mexico, right? They, they ran from northern Mexico all the way up through the, 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 western, the, the western states, basically from the 100th meridian in the, on the Great Plains, r- around from the 100th meridian west, all the way to the Pacific coast, up through the western Canadian provinces, all of Alaska. Um, and then they kind of got gradually, in the lower 48, whittled away to just a couple little enclaves in, in uh, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming. Colorado had them until, you know, they had them into the 40s, then starting in the 50s, like one would pop up now and then. Like, like out of nowhere, a grizzly would kill a sheep and some old trapper would go out and kill the grizzly. And it got to be 1950, was it 53? I think in 1953, the state declared grizzlies extinct. Gone. And then in 1979, there's a dude by the last name of Wiseman out bow hunting in the San Juans. With a recurve. I think he had a recurve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some bitch doesn't. He gets mauled. Most dudes probably had recurves yeah, back yeah, then. for sure. Gets mauled by a grizzly. There had always been rumors of some around. 
gets mauled by a grizzly. Uh, there's some controversy around what exactly happened, but the bear winds up dead. His story is that he kind of accidentally cornered it on a ridgeline somehow, and it was a sow, and she starts mauling him on the leg and then starts mauling him on the shoulder, and he sees his quiver laying there, and like his arrows had spilled out of his quiver, and according to his story, he takes an arrow and starts jabbing her with it. And she eventually stops mauling him, walks off a few yards and lays down, bleeds out and dies. They don't keep the body. Somehow like it winds up, the, they skin it. Biologists were able to look and not only is like, here's this female grizzly that supposedly been, ex- that, like the species has supposedly been extinct from the state for 26 years, but here she is. And she had like the, the color of her, uh, the color of her, she had like stretched out teats and the coloration on them suggested that she had reproduced in her life. And that brought on this big search that ran all the way into the early 90s of people coming down. Um, the, the, writer and, uh, the, the writer and environmentalist David Peterson was involved with it. The writer Rick, somehow it became like a literary thing, I guess. The writer Rick Bass got involved with it. The uh, contrarian Doug Peacock got involved with it. Of coming down and trying to establish the presence of grizzlies here. And kept at it till the 90s. And I think now there are still a lot of believers that there are grizzlies in Colorado. Um, I know some of them mm-hmm. personally. But, the, but they're new grizzlies, different grizzlies. Yeah, because that, that's the interesting to point out. Because this is the southern, we're in the like south of the state. So people were trying to establish this idea that there had always been some. Now there's a new idea that some are, and it's not unreasonable at all, and it will no. happen, that some are going to drift down from Wyoming and absolutely, yeah. like in 20 years, if I had to make, you know, in, in 20 years, they're, I'll just come out, yeah, I'll just say it. In 20 years, if, if trends continue, you will have grizzlies in Colorado in 20 years. Wolves are showing up. Yeah. Um, it's just going to happen. But the idea that they've been here and surviving in this mountain range now, despite some people that still believe, because then some kid claims to have had one come out and false charge him and basically like dance around him and stomp the ground around him. And he's got this whole elaborate story that happened to him in the San Juans. Um, and so, but it's kind of like a thing like people like to believe it. But back to this Wiseman dude story is that a lot of people felt that a more reasonable explanation would be that he stumbles upon the bear, sinks an arrow into it, and then gets mauled. And then it mauls him and then dies from the wound. But the dude took a polygraph. Right. Took a polygraph and passed the polygraph. That he got mauled first, then jabbed it with an arrow and killed it. There was only one jab mark? I don't know how. No, I think he jabbed it a handful of times around its neck. Gotcha. What do you think? I could see if there was what just do I think? one hole. It'd be like, oh, maybe he did shoot it. I, man, again, like if someone said, uh, if someone said, hey, I'm going to ask you a question. If you get the answer right, you live. If you get the answer wrong, I'm going to shoot you and kill you, right? And he said, did he shoot it, then get mauled, or mauled it, then get sh- then stabbed it? If I had to like do that, I would probably go with, I think he shot it, then got mauled. Mm-hmm. 
I never met the guy. It's a tough story to believe, man. <laughs> well, it, the book talks about they did an autopsy on this bear, and one of the wounds, they think the wound that probably did the most damage, the, the it showed the entry of an arrow as like creating a really round hole and, and puncture mark in the body, as opposed to some jagged stabbing motion. Oh, interesting. Like, it's just the last grizzly in Colorado happens to... But what does he think he's going to do if he shoot? Like, I think he's creeping along the woods. I mean, again, someone's got a gun to my head. I got to get it right or else I die. Right. This is heavy stakes, right? I got children. Um, <laughs> I don't know. He's creeping along and all of a sudden he's like, holy shit. But his first inclination <laughs> is to shoot it and then have to deal with the... Maybe he thought it was a black bear. That's, yeah, I was oh. going to say. Oh. Like, maybe he, yeah. What season? Was he hunting in bear? Was he like walking around in bear? Archery season? elk. Is that also black bear? Probably. Yeah, I'm sure. Oh, interesting. Well, if you thought it was a black bear, why wouldn't he just be like, I, I don't know yeah, that he thought it was, it was a black, black bear. bear. <laughs> that's why I don't because think they, that's Because there haven't been any grizzlies in your state for There haven't been any grizzlies years. in your state for 20... They were ex- declared extinct 26 years ago. It's not even on your mind. Yeah. Like, if I knew some guy in Michigan that had a bear tag and he's stumbling through the yeah. UP... Or no, not, let's say, not say Michigan because it historically didn't happen. A guy in South Dakota. Okay? Yeah. Do they got a lot of black bears in South... <sighs> help, me, help me with a good state, Yanni. <laughs> Help me with the state. has black bears and you Arizona. Have There's a guy stuck California. creeping through the woods in California. California's a good Creeping one. through the woods in California. He's got a bear tag, burning a hole in his pocket. And lo and behold, there through the brush is a bear. Yeah. Is, he, is it his responsibility to be like, hmm, I wonder if somehow there's a remnant surviving population of these bears that no one's known about for 26 years and maybe I better investigate quickly before loosing my arrow? Or is he going to be like, holy shit, a bear, shoot. No, he's going to shoot. I but think, what, I, what I'm saying, I don't think that could it? be the story because if that was the case, he would be like, I thought... Yeah. I'm having a hard I time taking you seriously bear. because you're so low. <laughs> <laughs> you're like that Jonah Hill skin, I can't, yeah. I can't see your yeah. cowboy. I can't see your cowboy boots, and your and your armpits are on the are resting on the table. But go ahead. <laughs> well, yeah, just the current situation here around the table. Um, no, I think if that was the case, he would just be like, "I thought it was a bear, uh, black bear, and I shot it, and it mauled me. It turns out it was a grizzly." Unless he was trying to just sound like a badass, you know, and he wanted to have this story about, you know, I don't, I don't know. Dude, I know. We're rehashing Maybe something. He just, that's been, well, we're rehashing something that's been hashed. What's, pretty, have, wild, <laughs> what's pretty wild about the story is the, the story of um, the surviving of like his night out. Yeah. Oh. It's pretty wild. He was hunting with his guide, hunting with a client. Yeah, he was the guide. Yeah. His, sends his client out of the woods to go get help. And uh, I think as he retold the story, he's just thinking like, well, if they go, like they'll probably be back by like 10. Well, 10 p.m. comes. The, the, guy, the guide had uh, collected a bunch of firewood for him, you know, and started a fire. The client. The client, yeah. Wait, not to interrupt this, but to go back, if there's another witness there. No, they, no. Were, they were split up. Separated. Oh, okay. What year was this? 79. Is the dude still alive? I don't know. Maybe. Could be a good podcast. I hope. I mean, I'd love to have mine. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. It could be. And, you know, we're just talking about a bunch of stuff we have no idea about. (laughs) I I just want to remind listeners that we have, we're just. I know. It'd be good to talk to the dude. Yeah. It'd be great to talk to the Yeah. But anyways, he survives all night. Fire, wood runs out, but he's 
incapacitated to the point where he can't go collect more wood. And so he basically shivers and bleeds, you know, and makes it to daylight until they get the rescue crew in there to get him out. Very easily could have just slipped off and slipped away. Yep. And that was the last grizzly. You know what's crazy is this happened on September 23rd. Yeah, what's the date right now? right now, man? September twenty third. You are kidding me. Nope. No shit. Wow. Dude. Forty years ago today. If you didn't believe in like uh, ghosts and whatnot, I don't know what that tells you. I can't find anything that says he's still alive though. He's alive in two thousand fourteen. Oh, he was. Hmm. Um. What was the other interesting thing about the San Juans? You were oh, there's of? another thing I want to talk about about the San Juans. It kind of pertains to some things, but uh, and some of the same characters are involved because. Again, the hunter and, and uh, environmentalist David nice. Peterson. Is he alive? Wait, when was that article? Today. Yeah. Yeah, he's 86 years old. 86. Dude, call him up. Still kicking? Still, Still kicking. kicking. In this photo of him, his well, hands are bigger than his head. <laughs> we'll put Corinne on it. Well, I, you know, yeah. But I mean, he's you know, at that age, you kind of, you know, I don't know if you really need to. Oh, I mean, it's up to him. Yeah. Um, would love to hear, would love to hear that story. And again, me talking about this whole thing about what happened. I have no idea what happened. I'm just talking about there's different perspectives on it. And if just looking at it from an outside, purely like outside looking in thing, there are, I'm not the only guy to bring up like, what, what now? Yeah. Uh, the other thing, this also involves David Peterson because he, he's, he's, he's promoted this idea is that one of the things we're seeing here is that one of the things that of like, that there's, uh, this elk herd here is declining. And there's a lot of contention about why this elk herd is declining. The thing that they're finding is, um, one of these guys that was involved, that was very involved and wrote a lot about and commented about this search for the last grizzly in the San Juans, feels that, um, I think he makes the argument that increased hunting pressure in the San Juans is interrupting the rut. And it's making that bulls don't bugle and cows aren't getting bred. And that there's also this addition of muzzleloader hunters in here. And that that is what's causing a decline in the elk herds. Biologists don't, on, on whole, biologists don't agree with this assessment because pregnancy rates are not down and calving rates aren't down but what's down is calf survivability, meaning calves are hitting the ground, but they're not reaching maturity. Yes. And, and some people this, look and say, you know what that means is that we have a predation problem, which flies in the face of people, um, which flies in the face of uh, an individual like David Peterson, who would argue that we have been waging this hundreds year long war on predators and to now blame predators on declining elk numbers is to once again look away from the reality of our own impacts on the landscape. Well, just coincidentally, this happens to, did I say that wrong? It just happens to coincide with the fact that Colorado's um, fish and wildlife has realized that they think that their bear population, that their numbers were off by possibly as much as like 
fifty percent. Like it, they they think it might be as twice as big as they as they thought it was just five years ago. But yeah. those new An models exploding, of counting. exploding population of yeah, black bears to the point where they're they've actually they this year they dropped the non resident bear tag price from three hundred and fifty to a hundred dollars because they really want people out there hunting black bears and reducing the population. For all sorts of reasons. I mean, this being one of them that possibly might be affecting, you know, elk herd size. But, uh, you know, there's just black bears. I mean, you guys were last night in a small rural town here. And, yeah. And uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, tell about that, Seth. Yeah, we just, we rolled into a town to fuel up. And we went to the gas station, fueled up, and we're coming back. And, like, you couldn't be any more downtown. <laughs> And there was a black bear stand there on the sidewalk downtown. Crippled. Crippled. His, uh, yeah, his front right paw was, he was like holding it. Got hit by a car or something, probably. Trying to get into a dumpster. Yep. It's one of those funny situations where you look at these, these kind of like guys that have been talking about hunting for so long and talking about wildlife for so long. Um, like, you know, these people we keep mentioning, like David Peterson and Doug Peacock and everything. It's like, you get into people get into this thing where you you have this set of ideas that you that you become very invested in, you know, and then time marches on, and your sets of ideas don't evolve with the new reality, and you wind up um, having like these like somewhat antiquated notions. But it, it's also this really interesting case study in how people's agenda can inform people's personal agenda or personal biases can inform an interpretation of science, which, you, which, which we all would hope that science sits in this objective position where we can talk about like fact and not fact. But you could be like, I've been, hunting bow, I've been bow hunting the San Juan Mountains my entire life. I used to have the place to myself. Elk hunting's going to shit. I love bears. What could be causing the problem? It's gotta be other hunters. And someone else who might be like, invested in hunter participation or a guide or whatever his thing's like oh that can't be it i make my living off hunters yeah it's gotta be the damn bears <laughs> yep. you know and and we'll, we all like go out and run out and push whatever version sort of reinforces our reality i shared this thing with my brother not long ago i was talking about why um did we talk about this like why big scientific advancements ha- are typically made by young people yeah, but I can't remember if it was on the podcast. So yeah, you, you definitely mentioned how better this, science is usually done by younger scientists. Yeah, was just, I was reading this book by the, he's coming on the podcast, but this guy, Justin Schmidt, who's an entomologist, and he came up with this thing called the Schmidt Pain Index, by which you can um, index out how the severity of insect bites. And he just put like, a, it's like one, two, three, four, four plus. And he's been bit by everything, every insect that can sting you. Um, and, and ranks them, and he studies toxins in insects. And it, 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 as sort of an aside in his book, he's like talking about why young people make scientific advancements. He's like, they make scientific advancements because they haven't yet entered that stage of their career where they're defending old ideas. Where it's like, you put forth an idea, and it's novel, and it gets a lot of attention, and then people start focusing on, well, look at this person's idea. And they start adding to it and questioning it and questioning its assumptions and challenging it. And then you either like, you know what, damn it, you're right. I need to evolve my feeling or you become entrenched and you spend your career, you know, being like, yeah, but it sure was a good idea. 
You know, <laughs> you spend your career like loving it. It's hard for a person in this position to be like, oh, you know, we need to stop this war on predators to then later be like, you know what, man? We gradually sort of did stop the war on predators and now we've got a shitload of them. You're kind of right. It's tough. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater. Make sure you use code MeatEater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. Hey, heads up all you anglers. Montana Casting Company is a performance fly rod and reel company based right here in Montana, based in Helena. After building custom fly rods for more than 25 years, Montana native and lifelong fly fisherman Scott Joyner decided to apply his knowledge in designing three performance-driven fly rod models. These rods were designed to be performance rods and to withstand the abuse that a fishing guide's equipment endures day in, day out. Their fly rods are named after Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks fishing access sites, which is such a cool idea. And each model of fly rod is a tribute to Montana's rugged beauty and adventurous spirit. Their rods capture the look, feel, and craftsmanship of a custom-built fly rod. Montana Casting Company fly rods have been developed to achieve the perfect balance of performance, durability, and legacy quality craftsmanship. Head to montanacastingco.com and use code MEATEATER20 at checkout for a one-time 20% off discount. What else, Johnny?
Man, I was trying to come up with a good segue because I think one of the things that dominated our conversations for at least for the last couple days was um, we did some hunting on the Continental Divide Trail or off the Continental Divide Trail that runs through the San Juans. And uh, it wasn't until like the third day up there that we ran into our first through hiker. This is a world I didn't know existed. Exactly. Which we've had, so we've had a lot of fun chatting about it. And then we ran into another through hiker, um, Denali and Soda, were the, their two na- trail names. Mm-hmm. Which I I knew about trail names. I didn't know where they how they came about. We still don't the, know how they come about. No, we yeah. We, I think we, we have an understanding. Of yeah, it. we got we got a grasp. You guys did some research. Yeah. Really? Yeah, you're with like a group of people on the trail, and they just like give you the name. But, and the caveat, remember the thing, the little blurb I found on Google was like, if you respond to it only one time, you're stuck with it forever. Oh. Yeah. So if somebody calls you something and you, and you like. Ignore it. Ignore it, it doesn't count. You just keep saying, no, my name is Steve. Mm-hmm. Oh, so that's how you don't get stuck with a trail yeah, name. Yeah, you ignore it. Because one dude we met's trail name is Soda because he likes drinking pop. Mm-hmm. I'd have called him Pop. And then another trail name, yeah, Denali. We don't know how she got it. No, should have asked. A through hiker is someone who will uh, do the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail, the Continental Divide Trail, and they do it top to bottom, Canada to Mexico. And they're the elite trail hiker. Mm-hmm. Or Mexico to Canada. You don't have to. Yeah, you can do it either go. way. Or you can just nickel and dime it over time. We met yeah. a guy yesterday who's just nickel and diamond it. That's right. He had a lot to and say. And you know what? Actually, did yeah. not. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. The dude nickel and diamond it had a hell of a lot more to say than the dudes that were just doing it. <laughs> certainly did, man. The dude, the dude I spent time with was doing the through hike was the least bragging, most unassuming. He's like, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm he walking. Told, he told us he was, he was being lazy because he didn't have a fishing rod. Yeah. I'm like, dude, you're walking. The entire 3,000 miles north yeah. to south of the whole United States, and you're saying you're being lazy. A dude from, yeah, a dude from London, a pair of Solomon sneakers, 13 pounds of gear. Is that what his pack weight with no food and water is 13 pounds? It might have been less than that, man. That thing was light. Yeah. He had like a Sawyer water purifying bottle, a bottle of Dr. A half bottle of, or like a couple licks of Dr. Pepper, <laughs> a zero degree bag, some kind of tent, which I can't imagine fitting that pack, a boonie hat, a pair Trek, of sneakers, some nylon poles. pants and some trekking poles. And that son of a bitch was walking from Canada to Mexico and acted like he was, if you'd have run into him, his demeanor was as though he was walking down to get a beer. Yeah. <laughs> Like it was just no fanfare whatsoever. Yeah, and I was like, I was expecting a bigger answer because you questioned his motive, and he just and 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 I liked his answer. He's from London, and he's basically like, "You guys have unbelievable wildlife and scenery and mountains here, and I don't have anything like that where I came from, and it's just great to walk through it." And that was like kind of the, that was it. And that's why I'm walking from Canada to Mexico. <laughs> damn good, man. Yeah. And you kind of expect like, well, I got divorced yeah. and I'm down and out. And I needed to clear my head to do something big. And here I am, you know, finding myself. But no. I just want to see the cool shit, man. Yeah. Just want to go see Big Mountain. Oh, he had no... He was like one of those dudes. There's dudes who are badass and want you to know about it. Well, there's dudes that aren't badass and want you to think there's badass. 
There's badasses that want you to know they're badasses. Then there's like badasses that that know they're badasses, but they intentionally underplay it as sort of a move. And then there's a dude who's a badass who doesn't even know he's a badass. Soda Pop's he, one of those. Soda yeah. Pop. He fell on the last. Soda Pop. It hasn't even occurred to him that he's a badass. <laughs> dude, I wish we'd have that guy on a podcast. I know, man. Just yeah, walking some of a bitch. He says some days he walks 30 miles. Yep. Not just a- plops down wherever he is, wakes up, just keeps walking. Mm-hmm. The only parts he doesn't like was when there's no water. <laughs> Which is, yeah, yeah, he had some nasty stories going through Wyoming, drinking right? Some drinking water. out of stock ponds. Oof. Yeah. Drinking out of stock ponds in Wyoming. How sick you get of that manure-flavored water. Yeah, he said it, it's not fun when you have to force yourself to drink the water because it tastes so bad and smells so bad. And he talked about an interesting kind of hunger. As he says, you get hungry to a point where hunger wakes you up in the middle of the night which is an interesting kind of hunger. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever I don't think I've never woke up with the woke up and having to be like the thing that woke me up was hunger. Yeah, and he was packing ramen noodles and rice. He says freeze dry is too expensive. Yep. Rourke and your tough dude. Days have you ever been uh out of food long enough? You know, when I finished seal training, they sent me to ranger school and rain, army ranger schools kind of system for making you crazy uncomfortable is doing a lot of packing and humping through mountains and things like that but it it is starvation they they give you one mre a day Oof. when you're operating at a very very high intensity level i wouldn't say i i woke up from hunger we thought about food constantly mm-hmm. the entire time you're in the field there you're probably thinking more about food than like the combat sure. scenario that they're running how many calories in an MRE? They're pretty calorie dense. I mean, they're, they're, they're made to be, you know, rations for troops in the field. I, I don't know what the number is. But, I mean, one is not enough for what we're doing. And if you were on a patrol, you could be on a patrol at night. You could have 50 people in your company, so spread out, you know, 600 yards apart. Somebody drops, like, a Skittle that they'd squirreled away from their MRE. <laughs> oh. Like, you could smell it from... <laughs> <laughs> like you just smell it and be like, somebody is eating a Skittle and somebody might have dropped a Skittle and I'm going to be looking for it. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and everybody knows, everybody knows what's in the MRE. I got pneumonia during the, the course. And so they pulled me from, from the, the block of training I was in. They sent me to the hospital. If I don't finish this course straight through, I won't start with my advanced SEAL tactical training team to earn my trident until I actually become a SEAL until like six months later. Like if I got back from Ranger School on time, I get to start with that class and become a SEAL, like real deal at the team. If I get bumped or rolled in this Ranger class and delayed that extra, whatever, three weeks, I would have to wait six. My, my SEAL dream was now six, eight months further away. So there's no way I wasn't making through this course. They take me to this hospital. Doctor's checking a bunch of troops coming to me. He's like, yeah, pneumonia, got to pull you. I was like, sir, please what's the worst that happens if you don't pull me? He's like, yeah, you know, you'll pass out. You'll be in big trouble. I was like, if I, well, can we make that deal? I'll come back. You see me again. I'm willing to run the risk. He's like, no, nah, I got to pull you. He walks out of the room. Nurse comes in and was like, well, the doc said, I said, I'm good to go. <laughs> She's like, yeah. I was like, yep. So she takes me out to the waiting room where the ranger, you know, whatever folks would bring me back to the class. The whole time I'm just praying I don't get made. 
she sits me in a uh, little lounge area and there were some uh, bags of candy, like just little bags of candy, and there were peanut M&Ms, which do not come in MREs. So I pocket one of those things. <laughs> Van takes me back to my company. I get back out. And that night, I'm back with my team and uh, my squad, like my four little dudes in this gun nest in this patrol base, this triangle patrol base where you'd set up like it's old school tactics where you'd set up three, you know, the, the apex of the triangle, you'd have a big machine gun nest and everybody spread out in a triangle around it with defensive positions, leaderships in the middle, like making plans or whatever. I break out those peanut M&Ms, you know, pass seven, eight of them to each guy. And like the two dudes that weren't in our gun nest, they're like sitting there can like smell the peanut M&Ms are <laughs> like looking up and they know for sure peanut M&Ms don't come. <laughs> in an MRE, and I'm looking over doing this to him, like, if you say something to an instructor that, like, I brought these peanut M&Ms, like, it's over for you. It's over for you. Don't wrap me out. Because, like, if you, got, if you got caught with something you were supposed to have, you'd get kicked out of the program. But I, I, I made it through and got back to my team. But I was hungry, man. And the thing you want, the thing you want when you're that hungry is sugar. Sugar is the thing you want more than anything. You know, you know what, I, what I want when I get super hungry is the shit that, uh, you know, when you go to, like, a big gas station off the highway, yep. and they got those glass cases. <laughs> Full of like all that brown food, yeah. corn, corn dogs really? and fried yeah. chicken. When I get That's like real about. hungry, I think about going in and smashing, the, going over to the side of my truck where I keep my pickaxe mounted to the outside of my truck <laughs> and coming in and <laughs> smashing that glass case open and eating all that brown food out of the inside of that thing. Why don't you just open the door to the case? It's got to be the... Just, I'm just that hungry. The drama, yeah. You yeah. don't have time to... I, don't, I want shattered glass all over. <laughs> all over the food, yeah. To get into one of them brown food cases. Because sometimes they take those things, it's like a, you make like a burrito and fill it full of a real low-grade barbecue meat and then deep fry that thing oh, and then yeah. put it in that case under that red glow lamp for a few days. <laughs> oh my God, those things look good. <laughs> I feel like... Maybe this is just for a, a personal deal with me, but I feel like it, for me, it was much worse when I was younger. Like we went and did our um, honeymoon in New Zealand and backpacked around for like five or six weeks. And I felt like that's all I could think about. As soon as I'd get on the trail and we'd be out there just long enough to be away from, you know, restaurant food, I'd just be like, next meal, next meal. What's in the pack? Oh, I can't wait to eat that, this, that, and the other. Now, I feel like I haven't had those thoughts on the trail for years. I don't get it on the trail. I get it as soon as I stop hiking. You start thinking about food. Smashing the gas station glass mm -hmm. case and raiding the brown food sure well, well i'm just saying in general when you're out in the woods like i just don't and maybe i'm just better at feeding myself i don't know the sugar thing's interesting because we got done with a pretty big hike the other morning when we were sitting there when we met soda pop and i think his name was soda yeah, yeah. i know oh, yanni referred to him to his face as <laughs> as old soda pop <laughs> yeah but his his real name was soda soda this his trail, trail name. His, his trail, trail name, name was Soda. Soda. Yeah. Yeah. We met Soda. We had a giant bag of gummy bears that we bought when we went grocery shopping like we do before all these trips. And those went fast, man. Like, do you notice that Soda, uh, you, hand, you tried to hand him a handful of pro bars and he wouldn't take them? Yeah, he did. He refused food. I just uh, offered him any, just a snack, because the rest of us were sitting around eating, and I figured this guy, you know, has been and I know. working I felt on like ramen he, and I rice. I felt like he wanted it, but wouldn't take it. Well, he oh. was, wasn't he going into town? Yeah. He, I he, felt like he, he wanted it, he but was, didn't take it. He was fixing to have a good meal in town. Yeah. Dude, all we had to offer were bars, man. Yeah, he's, he's been hiking pretty... for four months. I don't think he wants to look at another bar yeah. when he knows that there's he's a cheeseburger eat... yeah, in his like, future. You want a bowl of rice? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So we've been dogging on the... 
there's there's expectations. Oh, I was talking about day with uh, this ecological principle my brother just introduced me to. Um, opt, the optimal niche. Did they teach about this in forestry? Optimal, optimal niche and realized niche or niche, uh, niche, yeah. as some people might say. I don't say I that. I don't word. remember. What do you go with, Rourke? You're good niche. at Yeah, you're very good. I, one of the things, you're very, very good at... Uh, pronunciation and enunciation i like that stuff's important to me but i i have a little bit of a like i don't like when people use it's like the one word out of character that they use that whatever the standard variant of they pick the one that's a little bit cooler <laughs> mm-hmm. give me a like what's a good example our last president being like pakistan you know what he'd say it'd be like it's pakistan man we all say pakistan yeah i know they might say it but that's not the way we say it yeah i got you so for me, I say niche. My wife is leaning on me very heavily to stop saying Iran. <laughs> <laughs> she has a friend from there. She's like, please, it's not Iran. I'm like, I just think it is now. How do you pronounce it? Iran. 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 I can't do it. New to me. I can't say Chile. Yeah, I, exactly. I feel the same. Chile. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I don't, don't walk around saying, you guys should all call it Latvia. <laughs> this has nothing to do with anything but i think it's a really interesting idea is um we're hiking up elk hunting back home and we're looking at there's a lot of just shit loads of raspberries and it just so happens that i've been clearing a place in my yard to start my own raspberry patch and there's all these wild raspberries and i was saying to my brother who who deals in plants he's an ecologist um, I was saying, hey, uh, what do you think if I took these little shit and raspberries and brought them home, would they be like, this is the greatest place on earth and grow into the giant raspberries that you grow in your yard? Would they always be little shit and mountain raspberries? And he said, I don't know the answer to that. I could see it going both ways. And he said, but there's this thing. There's uh, optimal niche. I think, yeah, optimal niche and realized niche, meaning there are probably many plant species that would like to be in a certain place. Like ideally, they would occupy this niche. But because it's suitable for a lot of plant species and is very perfect for plants, there's a lot of pressure there. And plants have varying degrees of being able to deal with stress and they have varying degrees of being able to combat other plants through the production of toxins and aggressive rhizome structures, and they don't do well in battles. So they wind up growing, not where they should grow, but they grow where they can grow. And he was saying it may be that this plant's stature is the result of, it's not where it really would love to be, it's just where it can be. It's a low-pressure, low-stress environment for it to be. And if you had some little plot of ground and you plucked every freaking weed out of there and made it perfect and put them there, he might then realize his full potential of what he, like, quote, should look like. Which is, I thought was an interesting idea. Very. Um, I bring that up because we had come into this with high expectations, You'll see that this is a horrible segue because it's not the same shit. But it has to do with like the realized thing. And you uh, had an observation last night where you're like, once I got over the, of being in this unit elk hunting, once I got over the disappointment of it not being what I realized, what I wanted and aligned my expectations, it wound up being okay. 
Like I want to be in an okay place to run, run around. It just took five days to get over the, ugh, man. Yeah. Another truck, another guy. And the end, you're like, oh, that was pretty fun. And I got to be totally honest, man. On day one, on day one of the hunt, we heard a bugle, um, wrote it off as being a mug, kind of wrote it off as being a mug, had to be a person, got in there. Well, we might have heard the person. Oh, could be. Because we only heard one. The rest of the crew was listening to what sounded like a bugle battle. Day one, we do get into three young bulls. And they're half spooked. And so we're calling at the three young bulls and then kind of see this other bull, which want to be in one of the three young bulls. But anyways, moved and then bumped an elk that was like under our feet. And that could have been, there's a high likelihood that was another bull. For sure. That was coming up to check out. Because we had bugled and whatnot. Could have been our bull. He just never made any noise. And it could have been that we would have not moved up to see and he popped out and it could have been, right? We're in with a bull. Then there's kind of a very, like there's a sort of peculiarity of this place that these elk were. And it kind of made sense of like, it was like, like a little hidey hole. They had a lot of pressure below them. It was sort of like a spot where you could picture they kind of found a little solace in it. Watch this, watch this uh, full circle. Not in, their optima, not in their optimal niche, but they found some solace in a realized niche. Mm-hmm. That was, that was good. Freaking cliff face. That was good. Not where he wanted to be. If it was up to him, he'd be laying out in the biggest, grassiest meadow down in the valley bottom. But he couldn't because of pressure. Yeah. He had to go to his realized niche, which was like a cliff face. Um, we went back in there and found a bull and had like six days of hunting. This is, this is in defense of this area. Six days of hunting. And if you said to someone, you're going to hunt out for six days and you're going to have one like unbelievable encounter, what would most people say? I feel that they would say deal. Six days for one unbelievable encounter? Yeah, and then, and then sprinkled other encounters? Sprinkled, yeah, but one like... Yes, the average hunter would say deal. Yep, so you're going you're gonna to work your ass off for six days. You're going to have some days you don't see shit. You're going to have some days where you have like a half encounter, and then I'm going to present you with one like great encounter. I feel that a lot of guys would be like, yeah, that's reasonable. I'll take it. And we had yeah, it. I mean, everybody knows that, you know, I think success rates with a gun, I don't know if the difference between rifle and muzzleloader, but I want to say in Colorado it hovers around 30%. And so being that we had two hunters in camp and that you – just almost killed one. Mm-hmm. You know, we almost beat the the uh, yearly average, you know? Yeah. We went up with our bivy stuff, our camp out stuff, and went up to um, this little ridge top that sits at, I think the ridge top's 11,400 feet. Mm-hmm. Yep. And got there at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, man. Looked down into this kind of like air, the same kind of, it was, it was a couple miles away from where we ran into those three bulls, but like the same feature, the same landscape feature and same basic setup. And... Went down in there four o'clock in the afternoon. Here's a bull playing grab at or following a cow and a calf. And he might have even put kicked her up out of her bed, but he's following her along. So we gradually, gradually get down in their zone and try calling here and try calling there. And then we get to where we know, like the meadow we know they were in and start calling. And right away, a cow pops up at 80 yards, looks, watches for a long time where the sound's coming from goes back into the woods and comes up and parallels us very close, goes out of whatever happens to her. 
Then all of a sudden there's a bull down there and he comes out the same gap and has a look around. And then pretty soon a bunch of, then pretty soon another little shitting bull comes in alongside and sneaks in to get a look. Probably not legal. And then all these cows come out and a bull comes out and we're calling at the bull. He's at a hundred. I had said to myself, like we always talk, oh, like a hundred yards for a muzzleloader, which is far for open sites. He's hanging around 120 yards. We start bugling at him and he's like raking mud up, raking hunks of grass up. Finally, he comes over to chase a cow and comes into 80 yards and I get my shot opportunity and I pull off what everyone warned me, not what everyone, what multiple highly credentialed individuals warned me about was shooting muzzleloaders, meaning Giannis, Brody, and Remy Warren all said, you have to hit that thing just right with a muzzleloader. Um, Don't shoot him in the shoulders, whatever you're saying. if you hit them, you think, and Remy made a joke. Oh yeah, they go down hard and get up and they're gone. And this thing came, like, like I said, it came to 80 yards, turned broadside. I drew a bead on it, but it's not a precise, like with open sights. I'm, I know the guys that shoot them their whole life are very good with them. Like they're great with them, but I didn't do, in hindsight, I didn't do the practice I should have done. I mean, I grew up shooting open sights at 22s, open sight 22s at squirrels and stuff, but that was a long time ago. I've been like a scope dude for forever, but you can't use a scope in Colorado. And I should have done way more practice. I leveled off, felt good, pulled the trigger. He goes down like, like. He went down like. Insert favorite, <laughs> like hit by lightning, hit by a truck, hit by a train. Sack of, tea kettle. Sack of potatoes. And back up and gone. And we like found some blood that night, a little bit of blood that night ran it down to like just a pin drop and we'd only move the trail. I mean, what we'd move the trail a hundred yards if, yeah, if and no, not even a freaking drop came back early in the morning, not early morning, came back at daybreak after daybreak. Uh, I don't know. got down there seven thirty, eight 8 AM, maybe 8 AM, maybe yep. even later. I don't tell it was, it's cold. Got down there, started trailing again and it was a cold night. So I was feeling like if we could find this thing, it, the meat's going to be fine. Cause it was a chilly night. Um, pick up from that last pinprick of blood and never find another pinprick of blood until probably 150 yards later, just by following every possible elk trail, every possible elk track, I finally find a pine branch, a busted off pine branch sitting at shoulder height, high shoulder height that had a little blood wiped on it. And then we followed from there every elk track, every possible trail back and forth, in and out, never no drop of blood. It was rough, man. Sounds like you hit the void. Yeah. It's crazy, too, because, like, you, like, how hard he fell and hit the ground, it's like you, you'd think game over. You know? Yeah, but That's, you know what? If Rourke cocked back and punched me in the face, oh, how hard do I hit the ground? Just like hard. that bull. Mm-hmm. But would I be dead? No. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> depends, on, <laughs> depends on what kind of day Rourke's having, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> It's probably the, the, depends on the angle that he hits you at. Mm-hmm. Do you know, uh, Rourke told me a story one time about you guys are doing some kind of raid and he sees a dude running out of the, he catches a guy running. Tell that story. <laughs> my guy, I let my, my junior officers run that raid. So myself and my, my boss, my task commander, good buddy of mine, we're sitting outside the compound, but inside the security blanket of our gun trucks. We're in a pretty good spot, but night vision on, still in the tactical environment. 
and we had a squirter, which means a guy that got over the fence and was running, but he was on the target. And he jumped over this fence, and I was on night vision watching him, unarmed. He didn't have a weapon on him. But he could have gone right, which would have served him well, because I do not believe with all my battle gear on I would have ever caught him. But he hung a left and was on a jog running straight at me. <laughs> and I stood up. He didn't hear me stand up and took about a five to eight step linebacker Lawrence Taylor-esque run and put my shoulder into that dude to just knock him down and his body exploded. <laughs> oh my God. I thought I killed him. I thought I killed him. I actually felt bad. I didn't, I didn't know, uh, you know, I didn't know. He might, might, might have just been like the teenage son of, of the guy we were going after or whatever. But I mean, he, I've never hit anybody harder in any sport game. But I, I, I you know, we picked him up and grabbed him, got him, got him off all right, but... I don't think he'll ever forget that hit. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, like, again, man, to go back to this thing, like, someone's got a gun in your head and you had to get an answer right. And they said, is that, is that elk uh, alive right now or dead right now? I would go, al- I would probably, like, in that situation, I would, I would, I think I said this the other day, I would say alive, but I would half expect to hear the gun go off. I just don't know. Um, it was, the, it was confusing enough where there's a thing I, like, I feel like I should start doing haven't typically done in the past by kind of like I'm interested in the idea is if you get a wound if you wound something where there's a good likelihood that you killed it I'm interested in the idea and this there's some units where this is how it works there's black bear units in Alaska where if you if you wound an animal you notch your tag yeah um so with that I was like you know man I'm done I'm done um have never done that in the past when I had something get away uh, never done that past, but I'm, and I don't know that I'll always do it in the future. But in that moment, I was kind of like, man, because Rourke still had a tag. I was like, I'd rather put energy into having Rourke have an equal opportunity rather than racking up two opportunities. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know that. I don't know that that's like a rule for me, but that I just felt like, yeah, maybe some black bear is going to go into hibernation in extremely good shape because of that bear or because of that elk carcass. Mm-hmm. I don't know. The thing I talked about too when we were making the show and I talked about this was I got a buddy, I don't want to say where he works, but I got a buddy that works for a big grocery store chain. One day he sends me a picture of, you know those dumpsters? What do you call those dumpsters that you carry on a flatbed semi-trailer? Like, I don't know, the huge freaking dumpsters, you know what I mean? Like, it's like a semi-trailer, but it's a dumpster full of uh, packaged pork because someone had screwed up and taken a refrigerator truck and put it like in the wrong spot. So it didn't get offloaded. And he was like, they wouldn't even let him take it home. And they took all, all this packaged pork was in this giant freaking dumpster going to a landfill. And you're like, what a waste of animal life. You know, like what a waste of life to go to a landfill wrapped in plastic. And then this thing I always come to, like if you hit something and lose it out in the environment, you know, my brother pointed out one time, it's like, if you think it's wasteful, then you really don't believe in nutrient recycling because it's like there in its place. It's sort of like, eventually the animal's going to die. The, eventually that animal will die and will become food for other things. Um, and maybe that's what happened there and it died and it becomes food for other things. I'm not saying that this excuses it. I'm just saying like, it's one of the many complicated things that rolls through your head where you're like, you feel like, like one, you screwed up. You didn't aim carefully. You didn't prepare. You got excited. You did all this stupid stuff. 
Now you've caused this thing like pain and there's no sort of human gain. They're like, you, know, you, you, you don't gain the resource. Like you screwed up. And then you go like, yeah, but maybe I'll feel better when I roll these ideas, this collection of ideas through my head about, right? Some bear is loving or not, or yeah. some elk or some elk is having a very, very bad winter. Yeah. Yeah. It sucks to think about the suffering they may or may not go through. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty big hole, most likely, because it went through. I'm betting both sides, you know, through the top of the ridge. I don't know. I think it would have bled. Yeah. How do you, if it was a big hole, how do you, like, it was like no blood, man. No blood. Cause it's, that's the void, man. That's the spot between the spine and the top of the lungs. There's there's, just, they're not blood pumping through there. No. If I was able to just probably to take a knife, I think, and puncture your ribs, but not go into anything farther. Just do it. Rourke, I want to see. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Rourke. but like your, your, your ribs and your meat right there, you know, unless you go inside and catch something internal, but just your, just your chunk of ribs. I feel like you, because you even made much. the comment of like, you, oh, I guess you're. Your hand has a lot oh, more blood. I said blood there would have been it. a lot more blood if someone cut their finger. But your hands are, yeah, you got a lot of stuff going on there. Dude, my brother cut his finger the other day. We couldn't get it to stop bleeding. I know. He's blood all over the damn and place. Imagine, too, it's shaped, you know, barrel like. Yeah. And if it's up high, you know, that blood has a chance to, like, one, it has to be pumped up and out of that yeah. hole. And then as it's coming down, you know, it's drying, coagulating. Mm-hmm. So it happens. Yeah, and there, you just didn't hit anything vital. I don't know anybody that's ever quit hunting over it, but it's like, you know, if you're going to go out in the woods, I guess you just got to, there's got to be a certain amount of thing. If you're going to go out in the woods and shoot projectiles and stuff with the intent of killing it, mm-hmm. you better op- you better be like real frank with yourself about uh, the palatability of that not working out. Mm-hmm. It's not binary. I, I was listening to this gal talking the other day about this antelope hunt she'd been on. She talked about how she like she's like quote missed nine and then got one. Whoa! I'm like I I have to think that it wasn't binary. <laughs> that well, a couple of them got hit. <laughs> I mean, do you really go nine misses, but then all of a sudden you kill one? Yeah. Or is there some gray in there? It's got to be some gray. It's not binary. That's the thing. The first time I took my wife hunting, she never factored in. She thought I took her squirrel hunting. She thought you either killed it or hit it, and she hit one in the ear. Mm. And it ran up a tree and kind of like messed with its ear for a minute. And it had like it looked like a, when a deer gets cut on barbed wire, you could see it. I mean, we were in my mom's yard, I should point out. But uh, <laughs> you could see him up there. He's like totally fine. But she's like, it never occurred to me there would be anything other than one or the other. I thought I was like on off. I didn't know there was a middle switch. Yeah. <laughs> which is, yeah. But what about like, I don't know, this is probably a little controversial, but please. Well, when you get into like, we're, we're, we're going to talk 2020 presidential bid. Oh, fuck <laughs> no, <man. laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> well, hit me with the controversy. Like, I don't know. After the, after the couple bow hunts we went on, which, which we, nothing bad happened, but just the hitting the elk and then finding it the next day. That was my first experience with that. Cause every other meter I'd done was rifle and you, I mean, you're a good shot, so you hit it, and the fucking animal drops, and that's it. And we go and clean it up and With hike it out, and we start eating it, yeah. And it's a whole, it's, that's the binary thing. It's like that happened, and now we're enjoying it. And now with muzzle loaders too, like it happens where we shoot one, and it goes away. So like, I'm having a struggle accepting those as viable means of hunting. Mm-hmm. Like ethically. Like, yeah. And then I know people can miss, and you can do it with a rifle, but in my experience, based on what I've seen, it's like, 
if you are if you practice with a rifle and you're a good shot, you like the animal is done quick. And it just seems very clean and ethical and like how it should be. And when you introduce these like traditional things, it just seems more of like an ego thing that yeah. people are after. Like, oh, I can get it with a stick. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, that's great for you, man, but now you just interrupted this thing and you know. Cause well, you know you know what helps helps answer it? What? The only there's more in the equation than animal suffering. There's mm-hmm. efficacy. Because again, you're dealing with a finite resource. Yeah. And the way to enable the way to enable a larger pool of people to have an opportunity to extract from a finite resource is to regulate efficacy. There was a movement some years ago, Matt Yanni probably be able to remember when, when all of a sudden guys were discovering the efficacy of using 50 cal BMGs. Is that the right word for it? And there was like YouTube channels, right? Yeah. I don't know if I qualify it as a whole movement. It was a thing. There was like a thing. There was, can, can I say stirrings? Yeah, sure. There was some stirrings of guys realizing the incredible efficacy of the 50 cal round to hunt elk. Mm hmm. Um, Rigged up with big, heavy, big, heavy tack drivers with 50 cals and the fact that you could bowl an elk over 900 yards or whatever, right? So, um, and some states came out and said, you can't do that. You can't use, uh, if a 12 gauge is effective on waterfall, imagine how effective a 10 gauge would be or how effective an 8 gauge would be. You can't use 8 gauges. You can't buy a damn 8 gauge barely. So, um, if it was just, if, if game management came down to what kills animals the cleanest, mm-hmm. I think that we would welcome any and all technologies into the game. But the minute you enter any and all technologies into the game, efficacy goes up and participation will have to go down. If you have a population of, let's say you got a population, you got 100 panda bears and someone's like, uh, no, koala bears. There's 100 koala bears. And they're like, we can kill 10 koala bears and, and then next year we'll have 100 again because they'll reproduce. And you're only going to really have 100 because there's only so many eucalyptus trees. So we know that 100 koala bears is a great number. Every year we kill 10. Next year, magically, we got 100. If we didn't kill any, we'd still have 100 because that's just the carrying capacity of the landscape. And, and if you had a way that a guy has a 100% certainty of killing a koala bear, how many dudes get to hunt koala bears? One dude. No, 10. You're, ten. Not listening. you're right. I tuned there's out. Ten, for there's, <laughs> ten, there's 10 tags. Okay. <laughs> let's say, let's say you say you can only use red riders. Yep. And we find that people shooting red riders only have about a 10% success rate on koalas because they can soak up BBs. Okay. How many dudes now get to go koala hunting? How many do you need to, so that it's 10, 100, Chris? 10% it's 100. 10. Right, right, right. 100. Right. They all get to go. But they're all out shooting red riders at koalas. And they're absorbing those BBs. <laughs> and they're taking, they're sucking up BBs. That's wildlife management. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good note to end on. Yeah. That's good. Like you like that? that? No, yeah. It's, yeah. I'm going to start doing everything as koala bears. I think that's what really worked was the koalas. Yeah. 
You were, um, <laughs> no, you still lost Chris. <laughs> well, I was thinking about my concluding thought. in that case please in that case please have you you gotten through it yeah yeah. okay in that case please uh uh, ridge i would love to hear (laughs) more than anything in the world i would like to hear your concluding thought (laughs) it's not that deep man but (laughs) i just liked uh can't push your subaru again no no that's that'll get sold i'm sure uh i just like watching that elk be an elk man that was cool. I th- there's a, th- a lot of people I know and hang out with that never, ever get to see that. And that was cool. See that thing getting all... Throwing the mud up in the air. Yeah, kicking around. Yeah. Responding to the call, interacting. It was just really cool. Screwing that up will forever taint that. I always wish you... You know, now, like in hindsight, obviously, I wish you would just stayed at 100 yards. Yeah. Gone about his business. Caught our wind. I wish you would caught our wind. But the wind was in our face, man. Dude, it was a good wind day. That whole we were going to run out of daylight, but yeah, yeah. Rourke, what's up? You got a concluder? (laughs) (laughs) I have have two. We can come back to you. No, no, I no, I have a uh, I have a uh, something to do before a concluder, and then give you my thoughts on the concluder. Can I ask you a quick question, please? Why does your shirt say orange on it? I was a Syracuse Orangeman. Oh, huh. Gotcha. Yep. Thought you liked oranges. I do. <laughs> um, first, thanks, as always, to uh, uh, take me out and get to run amok with you guys. I, I, I would say, not to go into like my personal uh, life, I have struggled a little bit post being in this league of extraordinary gentlemen that was the military uh-huh. to find folks not in the military and kind of beyond that part of my life that I really like being around. And the media crew is that crew. You, Yanni, the rest of the the rest of the gents here and everybody booming. So I appreciate that greatly. Yeah, I even saw you get uh, Rich Pounder's phone number. Yeah, man. <laughs> you did, man. Yeah. Even though he's leaving. <laughs> Correct. 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 Uh, so I appreciate that. I appreciate well, that. Well, thanks, Rory. That's yeah. a very high That's compliment. Yeah. No, I mean yeah. it sincerely. I mean it sincerely. Yeah, because the, the thing that I meant to get into, but we didn't, but we talked about it before, and well, next time you come on, we'll talk about it. We're out of time now, is yeah. that uh, you're knowing the, 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 the way you knew yourself and knowing that there would be a void. Yeah. Being a, having the, like the self awareness to know that there would be this kind of void yeah. that was going to get filled with something when you left the military, and that you sort of consciously, you, I mean, you grew up outdoors, you grew up fishing, yeah, skiing, yeah, yeah. hiking, yeah. but you knew that you're like, there's going to be a void, and I'm going to consciously fill that void with something that taps into some of that same yeah. stuff because I don't want it to be filled in a way that isn't under my control. Oh yeah, and there's a whole lot of people filling voids with the wrong stuff from from our line of work. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's good. So that's that's first. So thanks. On concluders, there's almost nothing since I love literature probably more than anything when it comes to stories. I love storytelling. Nothing makes me happier than a story well concluded, and almost nothing bothers me more than one that doesn't end well. Mm-hmm. You should so, meet our friend Dirt Myth. <laughs> <laughs> so. So it occurred to me when I've listened to your podcast, they get to concluders whenever next I was going to be on it. This would be my answer. Not like I prepped this in any major way, but was that I'm not going to give a concluder because I feel like this story is about these relationships and I hope that story goes on for perpetuity. So I'm not going to close, even though I know that's a little esoteric, but I'm not going to no, give, like give a concluder because I don't want this story to end. What makes a great concluder is that it's well thought. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Seth? <laughs> Oh, shit. I like those pigs. <laughs> I love the sound of a pig yanking its head out of a feed trough. 
Boy, that takes yeah. me back. <laughs> no, I, it was it was just cool hanging out with you, Rourke. Like hearing your stories, man. Is that's awesome, dude. Rourke's got some stories, he's got man. Some good stories. The bummers, Agreed. a lot of them can't leave the. Uh, that's right. I know a lot of them can't leave the <laughs> yeah. woods, but I yeah. wish we had another week. Yeah. No, you yep. both. Yep, that was fun. Yeah, this is Danny. I had a thoroughly entertaining, interesting week. I appreciate it. Thanks for bringing me on to this. If your uh, footage turns out to be good, I hope you come back with us. Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, it was an interesting experience for if sure. If the footage is no good, you'll never hear from us again. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, second closer, I think, is more of a pro tip. The, the first half of my week, I would say, was fairly miserable because uh, wrong footwear. I came out here with the wrong footwear. And, and every camera guy has like 10 pairs of shoes that he travels with because you never know where you never you, know. You need rubber boots or. Yeah. Hiking boots, and so I brought a lot of four. And so the first one I tried for the first three days, put 30 miles on these things. Man, I thought my foot was going to fall off. And I, like I didn't, your, it was a blister that looked like a gunshot Oh, wound. dude, it's messed yeah, up. Yeah, I didn't really say anything about it because it didn't matter. I had to keep on walking. No, that earned you a lot of credit. Oh, yeah. thanks. Yeah. Because so, having never heard that the problem existed and then seeing the problem, and I was like, the fact that he hasn't brought that up, oh, yeah, that's yeah. good. Yeah, no, that's you good got stuff. That's soda-pop-level shit right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I pushed on my big toenail one night when we were spiked out, and a bunch of yellow pus came out of it. And that, and that was aside from the blister on the back of my foot that yeah. was the gunshot wound. And so, yeah, I guess to kind of bookend it from the beginning of the conversation, I would have traded anything for a pair of flip-flops that night. <laughs> <laughs> I would have done the rest yeah. of the shoot in flip-flops, but I had a backup pair. So pro tip, don't go on to one of these things uh, with a pair of boots that you haven't thoroughly walked in and in all sorts of terrain. <laughs> yeah, thoroughly And bring your flips. <laughs> yep. Yanni? We have a plane to catch, so thank you for listening very much, <laughs> and uh, we'll catch you next week. Boom. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear.